pop quiz, asshole. You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? I just want to know <laughs> <just interested laughs> how you look. Well, thank you very much. It's getting hotter and warmer over here. So as it continues to get hotter, I may have to rethink this whole strategy. But at the moment, yeah, yeah, it's a whole thing. So that's nice. I see you're looking pretty smooth, smooth, Gillette, smooth man over there. Yeah, I did have a shave yesterday. I did have a shave. I'm doing a I'm doing a, a sesh with some uh kids tomorrow, some training with some kids, and I thought I'd better not go with the big uh, grey man beard. They might right. like, you know. The hanging out at the gates of Park Mead look. Yeah. <laughs> what we used to call the, the three thirty brigade. Yeah, I remember oh them. My God. <laughs> Everyone's got an uncle. That was their motto. Oh my yeah. god. It's oh my god. days. Hey man, before we get too into it, I just want to let you know, like, this morning I had this moment of, you know, when you wake up and um, you, you sort of think, oh, I check, I'll check, and hopefully it's like, you know, a good couple of hours before, you know, wake up time, I was a bit snoozy, and I looked, and it was 3.59, and I thought, I have an opportunity to turn off the alarm before it wakes up G2. And I was like, da 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 And I was like, doing my pin number. And I tried to open it and like, just managed to sniff it off before 4 a.m. You, you octoprissied it. I you did it on the tick. <laughs> I just figured, you know, that that's as close to bomb disposal as I get and feels quite apt for uh, what we might yeah. discuss today. Using an app is very apt. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes but, um, yeah good one jimmy i'm glad it had a happy ending uh, yeah, that's nice too, man. That is, yeah i probably woke her up with my fidgeting to be honest but anyway that's <laughs> what, what um <laughs> uh, but it's another morning ritual i should get into hello um so... <laughs> <laughs> how are you carry on. i'm very well i'm very well i am <clears throat> it's um it's holiday on the 1st of May. I don't know if you have May Day where you are, but it still goes on here. There's no maypole dancing in Roswell, I'll tell you that. No matter how many times I try and start it going, (laughs) no one joins me as I frolic and prance outside in my white robes and flowery uh, essence and uh, going around uh... around the pond. That's an expat community Facebook group membership <laughs> one right there. <laughs> <laughs> Hopelessly offering a loose strand of a purple ribbon to a passerby who politely ignores me and looks at the horizon elsewhere. Poor old prancing Sheppy, that's what I say. But nonetheless, the 1st of May was a holiday and also today is a holiday. So loads of people obviously take up a official holiday so that they can have a massive holiday. Um, but I've still been working, but much less. So I still feel like it's a holiday and Matusha has been on pure holiday. So it's been like party party here, which is nice. Which probably explains why I can't speak 
<clears throat> lots of karaoke and so forth. Amazing. So that's nice. <clears throat> so what was your so, main number, Sheffield, the karaoke? I've got to know that. I usually end up with in trees, honestly. In my, dreams, my, cranberries. Well, yeah, in dreams, the Orbison. Um, oh, sorry, of course. Yeah. The, um, but that's that's the ultimate. But ultimately, it's always been live and let die. Is the you know blind? If you have to go with something, go with that. You can literally do that with your eyes shut, as I have often done, and your legs bandy. So that's nice. But also, it was for a while my go-to was take on me until I did it on a stage uh, somewhere in Lithuania, somewhere outside Vilnius, and. It was the best karaoke, nay, it was the best performance the world has ever seen of Take On Me. And they were singing along and I was holding up the microphone and there was an energy between me and that faithful crowd. And I was popping on the stage and I did it and I, I know I was clenching the mic with two fists with my eyes shut. I was basically on my knees. And Jimmy, I might literally have been on my knees at one point really fucking going for it crowd went wild the next day people were like coming up to me and we like hey and hey take on me aha guy and i'm like hey hey guy um and so since then i've retired it on karaoke because that's what's the point you know when you reach the summit <laughs> you don't go back for a quick kodak you know what i'm saying Morton Harkett has reached out to you via Twitter to be a pal yeah, as well. That's nice. That's great. I love that there's a definite bond theme between that and Live and Let Die and, you know, mm. Living Daylights. That's, that's nice. That's nice, Sheps. I envy you, man. I envy you because, you know, Jesus wept. If I ever get a microphone in my hand, I have to go with a, a crowd pleaser that everyone will join in with. So I don't. Four lions. Yeah, it was something like that. Yes. <laughs> Something lager swiggingly, pub thumpingly, lads rousingly, patriotic. Some <laughs> yeah, hooligan chant. Yes, well, that sums it up. Uh, quite well, right. I did do, um, oh, it was been around the world, E17, I knew you once, and uh, and it was oddly successful insofar as oh. myself and another gent called James as well did it, and uh. And and it got to the rap bit, and we we really went for it in a sort of an ironic way. And 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 the part well, of are we bit. talking Gutenberg and dancing in Dreaming <laughs> and the Little Lady? Are we going to that level? Yeah, it was the old shout to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, <laughs> to the home I love best. <laughs> oh God, I knew I should have killed you after when Noel came out, and then the crowd went wild. It only fed the fire. I should have stopped it with Vactory immediately. <laughs> but yeah, that's the only time I've ever sort of uh, felt any, even 1% of the uh, the Harkett juices, we'll say. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good for you, man. Um, I like that. And I also know you like performing at the local pub where you used to hang out in Wembley so that you could scream <sighs> out. Yes. I um, about that too. Oh, you, dude. You just no one, me. No one else forgot about that. No, no, that that made the headlines. Jimbo strikes again. <laughs> Neighbourhood at arms. 
just in case we keep this bit cheffy, like, I'm just going to quickly say because I think I laughed over that because you 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 were giving me one of the best jokes I've ever come up with, which is that that you know the torch in Wembley at the top of Wembley Park. There's literally one man and a dog at the bar, but because you're doing karaoke there, you can do a good evening. You're not lying. To the mic. You're not lying. <laughs> you can say under duress at a later point with a lie detector and a gun to your head, I performed, quote unquote, at Wembley. <laughs> and I said, I, non-ironically and literally, hello, Wembley, as I performed whatever the hell you were performing. Well, I know what it was. Number. I know what it was. One of them. I remember vividly. It was deeply dippy by right, said Fred, and I gave What's it a. It fucking How was? dippy are you feeling tonight, Wembley? And there was like one man at the back just going. The dog started me. howling. <laughs> it made me very happy. Reminding me of that, Sheffy. That is really, really lovely and happy. That's why you had to move to East London. <laughs> Go show your face around Richmond for over a year. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Amazing God, what job. An this is Jesus. I'm very happy. Well, I um, have to oh. say, is there any, I mean, generally speaking, Jimmy, is life okay for you? I know life you had great, like yeah. crazy, busy, worky movie stuff going on. I, I am a wee bit busy with that, but it's, it's all, it's, it's, you know, semi under control, Sheffy. I'm going for one final hurrah with the business to see if we can really make something sing. I'm going to be at a big conference soon with a stand, which we're very excited about. We're designing things to go around the stand, posters and whatnot, and pull-ups. And I'm, and I'm going to be speaking at it as well. I might even throw out some karaoke. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, can I have videos or at least photos of some of this, please? <laughs> Why not? But like yeah. I said to you before, like, the televisual life is amazing. Like, flipping heck, last season of Succession was just... I'm not even going to say anything in case my eyes give anything away, but look, just yes. Well, and to be Ted continued with actually, that. Ted Lasso is actually regaining some real form and chocolatey loveliness, all the best bits of love actually in a TV show. And then um, what, what was the other one? Oh, Barry as well. Flipping it, man. Those three things on their last season at the moment are delivering. And so I'm very happy. With you that. know, what's lovely is you're doing all of this and I haven't started a single one of those seasons yet because I need to finish other things, but actually we've just started this other thing now. So I'll tell you, we've been watching Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, the one from the late 70s with Guinness, and it's seven parts, and, you know, it's fucking glacial, but, you know, you get into it, and it's it's good. I read the books, like, ages ago when I was living in Hackney, and then I saw it then, and it was just before the Gary Oldman one came out, so I was well into it for, like, about a year and a half there. Um, so I thought it'd be nice. And so we watched it and it's gone down well, I'm happy to say. And actually today we just started the sequel, which was made three years later, Smiley's sequel, which is actually book three. They never do the middle one because uh, it's too expensive. Um, so anyway, so there you go. The middle one is the Honourable Schoolboy. And I can see why they wouldn't do it, but I wish they did. But it's when Smiley is at the height of his powers. We never see it. He's like fucked in Tinker Tailor until the very end. And then he's like number one, but then we never get to see him be number one because then he's retired for the for the last one. So that's always a bit of a shame for me because I just want to see one where he's writing it. But they never make it because it's all set in China and Hong Kong and shit, and it'd be too expensive and tricky. And also, it's hard to adapt when it's not as potentially exciting. But I say do it anyway. So that's so we've been doing that, Jimmy. But we will do the ones that you've said. 
and I like it. How are you doing with the Mandalorian? Oh yeah, we're at, uh, we're about three or four in now, I think. Just press thirty seconds forward if if you're a Mando fan and listening to this. But basically, he's he's just been accepted back in, you know, and right. there's a big. Yeah grumpy Mandalorian who doesn't seem very happy about it. That's how it <laughs> nice. I like that big grumpy Mandalorian. I don't know his name, but he's cool. So yeah, I know, I know it. We've just finished it. We did the last one yesterday, I think. So that's nice. Um, and it yes. is good, is it? And we can, yeah, I, well, well, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk when you're all done. And we'll certainly talk about all the things you just mentioned when I've done and we've both done. And so that's a future conversation that will be both meaty and succulent with lots of juice <laughs> so i'm very excited before we i mean i'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk now about my standard feature which is now only fools and horses so we finished i believe it's season four it's uh, it's the one which was made in 1985 and it's the introduction of albert and it handles the death of leonard pierce and the death of grandpa very very well very respectfully and it has the funeral but then it has this really good joke um, after like this really nice moment really good pitch perfect it is this really genuinely emotional moment well i'll just say they yeah. they yeah. putting the dirt in the coffin and it's an emotional moment and rodney and dale stand there and they throw the hat in the grave and it all gets filled in and then they walk away after saying a nice moment and then the vicar comes out and looks around and says where's my hat and it's like, pow! And it's like this, in the ultimate punchline, which uh, doesn't dilute what just happened, but it's like, it's so funny. Um, so it's, and it's, so there's loads of good stuff like that. And, you know, weirdly, Uncle um, Albert doesn't, I always want to say Uncle Arthur, Uncle Albert um, is actually a more rounded character than Grandpa. He gets out and about. He's not just like a Muppet in the chair the whole time. He, he goes out all the time and he has the whole angle which grandpa didn't have of like being in the navy and being a terrible sailor and all of that extra character he isn't he's never as good he is annoying and he's not as good as grandpa but he does have all these extra things that i get into but i never really look at him if i can help it or old what's his face whose name i'm just buster merrifield but i always look at Dell or rogers um, I never really give Albert a chance. He's got an annoying face. But never mind. That's nice. And I'll say this. The Christmas special for 1985, which again, I think is the Christmas special for season four, does something different. Whereas all the other seasons have a Christmas special, which is kind of meaty, like one, like the dad comes back and it's like, oh, and, you know, and another one, Dell really puts his heart out there and it really goes wrong. And it's like, ah, and so there are these big emotional stories for the Christmas ones. Whereas for this one, it's officially successful at this point. And they go, right, it, we're not even going to set it at Christmas. It's going to be the Christmas special. It's going to be broadcast, BBC One, Christmas Day. But it's the plot. We're not even going to stick uh, like a Christmas tree in the background. Just no. But the Christmas special is basically a feature film. And I knew it was 90 minutes. And I had seen it before. It's, uh, and it's the one where they smuggle um, diamonds to Amsterdam. And I had seen it before, but when I, and I knew it was 90 minutes going in, and we set it aside as our Friday night movie, essentially. And it was like, oh my God, it's essentially. But what I really, I had to pause it about two minutes into it, because I was like, I've just realized, and I have to say it out loud, 
this is a movie. It's it's a genuine Only Fools and Horses movie. It's not with an audience. And more than that, it's all apparently, it looks like it's shot on film and it's shot knowing that there is, doesn't need to be an audience. So it, it's it's three dimensional. You see the, the fourth wall in the flat, you have close-ups and you, you don't, the performances accordingly aren't to the audience. So it, they're, they're down a few notches. And it's it's amazing and it's funny because they say these lines which are pure Sullivan and they do stop for like a little audience, but not not a literal audience pause, but like there's a, a comedic beat, but then they continue. And so all the pacing is different and it feels so different, but it's so it works so well and it could have gone theatrical. It didn't. But you know, but, you know, at a certain point, if it was released in a different era, it might have gone theatrical. It wouldn't have surprised me. So I really like it. And it's it's good. And I remember when um, Miami twice was on TV, and you at the time in Parkland Playground poo pooed it, because you said it didn't feel like only fools and horses, it was trying to be something different. And you're right. But now, at least we have precedent that the big ones, Sullivan always had lofty ambitions to break the sitcom format and to get, get a bit more epic, which I say hats off. And I'll, we'll get to Miami twice at some point and we'll see how that fares. But in this case, it's probably the best, and I'm going to just call it like a TV movie adaptation of, I haven't seen the Porridge movie and that's apparently very good. But I say on the buses, it's time is up. Ding, ding. I think <laughs> it's take the crown. It's uh, it was really good, Jimmy. I don't know if you remember that one at all. As you say the plot, the vaguest of recollections, but but honestly, couldn't tell you a scene from it, and I'm very excited, man. You're, it's wait, really good. I'm not even living vicariously. I'm furious with jealousy. I'm purple with jealousy. I really want to do this <laughs> lap as well. Like I, I, I kind of almost wish I was with you with every episode as well. Yes. Because like, I just um, yeah, man. The, oh, for a transporter or some sort of tube where you go through <laughs> the core of the earth and pop up. That would be nice. <laughs> um, I will say we've started now, therefore, season five or maybe even six. It's the one from 1986. I've totally lost track of the seasons now. But since this epic one where they go to Amsterdam, each episode is larger now. They're so in their peak. And, you know, it took a long time. It's like the wire for it actually to get really successful. But they kept making it, thank God. And then it found itself and all that. But it's now, like each episode would have been a previous season's Christmas episode in terms of scale. Like one, they're, they're like stuck overnight of a hold up in a supermarket um, and this sort of thing, which is amazing. And another one is the one where Dell has to hang glide, <laughs> which is amazing as well. So yeah, so I, we've done about three or four, I think, three maybe, and they're each chunky and you know in, in scope, which is exciting. So I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So hurrah to that. Um, so I'm enjoying the whole journey and I will continue to make you purple with jealousy and then feel free when you take the plunge. I hope it is smooth sailing, but it's very rewarding, despite the occasional consistent to, to this season where I am now, racial slurs. Fairly offhandedly, pretty commonly, massive pity. But there you go. <laughs> well, that's of the time they screamed. So anyway, that's nice. In the meantime, Jimmy, unless you had anything else, no, um, I am very happy to jump in. 
Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I am Jimmy. Hello, I am Sheppy. <laughs> Said with pride. Whilst I can still speak. Yeah. Oh, Sheps. Um, I am. Yes, <laughs> Jesus, get the script. Wow, right. that was off to a, a boring start. <laughs> welcome to the BBC. I'm glad. I am. <laughs> I'm glad I got the double T back. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are the What If podcast, Sheps, for movies, sequels, prequels, TV spin-offs, extra seasons, pre-seasons, post-seasons, Christmas specials, you <laughs> bloody name it, and we shall supply it. That's where I'm going this week. Turned into an advert. <laughs> you caught your cough over the airwaves. Yeah, look at that, Amazing. over the transmission. Um, I love yeah. it. Well, it's the passion, you see. I, I, I bought it. Well, you're selling. I'm up for it. Uh, yes, Jimmy, today you set the movie sequel What If that we are going to tackle, and it's a very exciting one. It's Again, it's one that I would ne I had never considered. Um, it had never been on any of my lists, so it was a nice, ah, uh, uh, what movie is it, Jimmy? Debbie, I, I suggested Speed, because I was full of the joys of John Wick 4 and was very happy and sort of reflecting on the the uh, resume of Reeves, shall we say, and yes. uh, and just thought, yeah, why not? Uh, why not? Let's tackle Speed, man, because it's got a, a sequel that a lot of people don't like very much. Maybe we could uh, think of a sequel that that specifically involves the return of his character, which didn't happen in Cruise Control, and um, and yeah, I just thought about it would be quite a fun one. And then, honestly, spoiler alert, in composing it, I really wrestled and wrestled with what to do. And and you know figured as I was writing it, we kind of did this a bit with the Die Hard one you set us in a way, you know, because it is sure. Die Hard. A confined location yeah. situation, yeah. And so it was very tricky to try and think of something original in this space. And and spoiler alert, I haven't really. I've just gone more with sort of keeping the characters, the LA sunniness, and. Finding nice. it to LA and making it have some DNA to the first one, and uh, yeah, so we'll get to all of that in a minute. Well, well, I'm very excited by that. Well, I'm really glad you chose Speed. First of all, I haven't seen John Wick four yet, but is it good? And yeah. does it compare with the the others? It really does, I think, favorably. Nice. And again, that's all I say in case I say something nice. Like that. But yeah, yeah. Now let me ask you. I assume you like Reeves generally in throughout his entire career. You like the essence of what Keanu Reeves is. I really do. I think I won't say he was the punchline of an acting joke, but I will say like my respect for him has grown exponentially, Sheps. Like I, he seems like a thoroughly decent dude whenever you see him interviewed. But more than that, like he's actually been in some of my favorite movies and when i say like favorite i'm talking pantheon favorite like do you know what i mean so like it's a real he's right up there probably sort of secretly give us some of you. those movies what are, what well, are like, your so, well, choices well, speed would be one of them point break would be one of them john wick would be one of them matrix for f's sake you know like those are some iconic roles aren't they you know yeah. um, and he's I mean, John Wick has really tapped into this, but he's kind of at his best when he's saying very few things, but his charisma is there and his action star, you know, awesomeness is yeah. 
you know, there for all to see. It's when he has to express himself verbally sometimes that you, you hit a brick wall because there is a wooden essence to the delivery, which is, you know, there, whatever you can do. There's this film, he's made a bunch of films with Winona Ryder. There's this one where they go to a wedding and it's like this romantic comedy from about five or six years ago. And the whole thing in the whole film is no one else speaks. They go off and have conversations, but you never follow that person to see. So the only conversations you have are between Reeves and Ryder. And it's really good. Um, Ryder, it makes you realize it's just amazing. And she makes, you know, movies, it's just so much dialogue. And it just all comes out and she performs so naturalistically. And then Reeves is just like pure Reeves. And it's like, well, good. And also he seems to be remembering the words. So good for him. Because it's not like a link matter joint. It's not improv. It's clearly like, it's like a play. Maybe it was a play. Um, so it's very specific dialogue. But anyway, I recommend it. And he's not bad in it. But it does showcase that he is, like you say, better when he's kind of like stoic and yeah. you know passionate and all of that and his accent in dracula is you know famous not it's not up there with van dyke but it is mentioned in the same whisper <laughs> yeah i remember that that's so that i, I have to look that up that 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 rider movie that's nice chefs because like yeah but i what what does he mean to you or reevesy right and i really like him too i took him for granted for a long time and in the 90s he was making some like you know, chain reaction type things. Um, and I was a bit like, Meh. and he was in Dog Star, his band, and you know, good for him. But he was, you know, but I always liked him and I like, I always like Point Break. And again, Bill and Ted, or big fan always. And little things like um, um, Parenthood, which we saw, and then I didn't see again until only a few years ago. So I didn't really acknowledge Keanu Reeves in it at the time, but he's in that. He's very good, like 89 Reeves. I've never seen My Private Idaho, but good old Reeves. And yeah, I, I, I like him. And Speed was nice. Even though he had only done Point Break a few years before, um, everyone was suddenly like, oh, Keanu Reeves is like a real action hero. And it did certainly pop up his career to like proper A-list mega at that point in time, say it was Speed that did it. And also I remember, and actually in retrospect, his haircut, the kind of military buzz cut he has in Speed, is such an interesting choice. And I assume it was his choice as Reeves, because um, he wanted to play this kind of like SWAT type. Um, but, you know, I'm sure the producers were like, fuck, you know, where, where's the floppy flop? So, um, but, but as, as it turns out, it was the right choice. Um, and I will also say, I remember, first of all, you and I did not see this together at the cinema, but I do remember you telling me that you really liked Keanu Reeves' jacket in Speed and you were looking to get one. Um, and so I remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember <laughs> the first time you saw Speed at the cinema. In, it was released in England in like autumn uh, 94. I... I, you know, I obviously did. My memory is not of me seeing it so much as Vicky seeing it first and me being well gel of her <laughs> being able to to check it out first. I think she'd gone to the movies, you know, on mum's dime and on mum's lift with her friend Ruth and on the pretext of seeing something else. And then I think Steve Speed was like, was it a 12 or a 15? I don't know. but It was a 15. I'm it sure it was a 15. 15. It had more than one fuck, and it had the screwdriver in the ear. 
And I yeah. think it was the multiple fucks and the screwdriver that made you a 15. Yeah. So on that pretext, you know, call the cops. I think 12-year-old Vic or whatever she was. like. Well, you know, you know why this is, of course, because of the license to kill incident. So you, you take a nine-year-old to see Anthony Zerbe's head do a great melon pop, and then, of course, she's going to not want to come down from that high. Of course, she's going <laughs> to smuggle in to see some Reeves action. Want to get her hopper on. So, yeah, not so much. one of those queer sibling moments where she comes home and I'm like, you know, I don't know how was God knows what was out at the time. It was PG you know, and a bit girly or whatever and then she's like, sure, how was like, Care Bears 18? Yeah, Care Bears was great, you know, Fluffy Bear was brilliant and then upstairs she says to me Fluffy Bear, I don't even know because I went to a speed <laughs> and I explode and go purple with jealousy there too. So, anyway, <laughs> um, so she threw it immediately in your face. And it's also one of the sort of I don't I couldn't even really tell you what they said about it, but I just remember definitively seeing the Empire review first on this one, seeing it was five stars and being quite surprised by that and thinking, oh, that's quite a big deal for Empire to do that in those days. And I was like, and, oh, you know, yeah, you speed could conceivably have been a three star. Yeah. And a four star would have been like a, oh nice, but a five star is a bold statement. Yeah. And and you know what? I think despite maybe a four-star ending, I saw it just about 18 months ago, so I didn't sort of do a rewatch for this, but I think the rest of the movie is fine. You know, it's wicked. It's yeah. really, really well made, isn't it? Like, yeah, really fun, really funny. Great yeah. banter with Jeff as well. Jeff and Keanu, <laughs> wonderful banter. Yeah. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's kinetic, it's wicked and good old DeBont and everything. It's, yeah. Right. Well, I think it's, well, you me, I didn't rewatch it for this either. I saw it about maybe two or three years ago, three years probably. Um, but I, I've seen, you know, I'm, I'm familiar. I like it very much. And it's like, you know, a, a heavy script rewrite by Whedon. And you once you know that, it's all there. The, the the banter, like you say, he apparently invented the Jeff Daniels character, wow. and and had him there essentially to die, so that he would give him the whole emotional weight, and then that's where Harry came from, and then give it to Daniels because you can always rely on Daniels to knock it out of the park to do whatever is needed in any given situation. Good old Daniels, so good old Whedon, and also yeah, the banter. I believe the three star ending was. Whedon, but it's not like his choice. He was told we need. A, we've got the lift, amazing cliffhanger level of yeah, pull up your knees. You don't want to lose it at the ankle. That's amazing. And again, it's that sort of fear, and they do it so perfectly to really capitalise on that inherent lift phobia. So that's been all elevated for the viewer, if you will. So that's great. So they wanted, I think, a third act. Sort of spoiler, but not really. For mine. For a brief second, I had a beginning and a third, you know, act, which was separate to the main thing, just in very, very, but it was quickly, you know, because naturally, as you can imagine, anyway, mine just was like, Bloo! so I was like, I can't, I'm not going to fucking add uh, a prologue and, a, and, a, and an epilogue of like another massive thing each. So, just, so, so if you ask me way later, I'll tell you what my vague ideas were for that. That didn't happen, but it is in. But I guess that's why, to forget all the way back, that's why they needed the subway ending. They needed, therefore, to be a third act to the lift, if you will. 
Yes, I can't really wait for what you've come up with, my friend. But what was your first uh, speed? What was when did you ah, watch it first? What I saw it in the cinema, and it was one of those films. Like I say, I remember it coming out in England in autumn, and I just started sixth form college, and I really, really associate that exact moment in time with Speed coming out and The Mask, um, and the, it was it was pure. And I saw it in Guildford Cinema with, I, I, I guess, Rob and Dr. Mike. And I, I remember enjoying it. I, it wasn't like I don't have many details. I don't remember specific moments, but I liked it. And then I got it on video and I saw it a bunch. Uh, so, yes, hooray for speed. And maybe I sort of had a slight wobble on it around maybe 2004. But then it's it's been better since then. And like I say, the last time I saw it, I really enjoyed it warts and all. Um, Jan de Bond, his first film as director, amazing cinematographer, did Die Hard, and that's revolutionary in that the way that's filmed anyway. So good for him. I think it's safe to say that Jan never really beat Speed in terms of film output. They're getting even Speed to, you know, it, like what? Yeah, like the, the other ones. I don't know what else he's done that recently. I think he did Tomb Raider 2. Um, with, with yeah. Germany, but again, that was ages ago. And Let me just give a quick Google check. Hang on, did Twister and he did The House of Haunted Hill yeah. with Cecil Jones. And I don't know what else he's Haunting. Done. Oh, is that The Haunting of Hill House? I think it's the adaptation, oh, yeah. but it's called The Haunting. Cecil Jones and Neeson. It's the one where Owen Wilson gets his head lopped off inside the fireplace. That's the only good bit. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> have I just sold it to you? You really have. Yeah, right. Yanderbond's triumph. Yan, Yan, he's our man. If no one can decapitate Owen Wilson in a fireplace, no one can. I'm well up for it. Um, but what else? Have you got it up on your screen? Yeah, Do you know yeah. what there's else not really done? much else in the big hit. I've forgotten Twister, actually, funny enough, there, Sheps. But... That was his big follow-up yeah. to Speed. Yeah. And that was a big hit, huge hit. Yeah. Yeah, good for it. It's a great idea for a movie, isn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah. I'm not getting it quickly, Sheps. I think we've covered the big hits, to be honest. Fair enough. He was a direct Lethal Weapon 3, though. It's interesting. And Basic Instinct. And Shine Through. Uh, and Flatliners. And Hunt for Red October. Jesus wept. I know, what a career. Right? Yeah, wow. He's like Barry Sonnefeld. Yeah, wow. Yeah, solid, very solid. Good old Jan. Uh, Dutch, I, I think. So <laughs> probably good friends with Vernhoven getting it on on Basic Instinct, high-fiving. So um, in terms of, I will quickly mention Speed 2, saw it at the cinema, haven't seen it since. I was up for it. I didn't mind Jason Patrick. I was like, okay, that's a shame, but okay. Um, I had nothing against it. It wasn't like a Beverly Hills Got Three experience where my expectations were soaring and were dashed. I was like, let's see what this is like. Oh, no, it's shit. Oh, well, that's the end of that. So I haven't ruminated on it much. I remember Willem Dafoe's the baddie. There's a character in mine who might, I, I don't know who's playing it. In my mind, it's Alan Ruck, but it can't be Alan Ruck. So in my mind, it might be William H. Macy, but I'm not actually sure if William H. Macy is in actually Speed 2 Cruise Control. Um, and if he is, does that mean I can use him? I don't think it does. <clears throat> it goes against my ethos, even if it's a coincidence. <laughs> so I just need someone else to play single dad. In any case, uh, maybe Matt McCoy. So in terms of Speed 2, it's, I, yeah, I just remember it doesn't work. And by the way, don't call it speed when you're doing like 10 knots. 
it's not fast it's not good they get overtaken overtaken by a jet ski at one point that's not even lying and it does the classic sequel thing of bringing back people who wouldn't be there like the guy like is your car insured yeah why smash oh, the first one. they bring him back and it's like oh man i just bought a condo here it's a real sheriff pepper um, being in thailand but there you go um i don't condone it so and well, no, I do condone it, kind of. I mean, when, with Pepper, what can you do? But with this shit, yeah, it, yeah, it serves no purpose. So, so, so there you go. And in terms of everything else, in terms of speed, it's everything like you say. It's funny. It's fast. There's no way. They, the way they cheat when they film the bus jump is actually insulting because you know it doesn't even make half a meter on that jump. And I get why they say 50 because it's all 50, 50, 50. It's going to be 50 meters and everything. 50 feet either way it's like it's just not like, it's the it only goes, yeah right. it should just go down and it's like a ramp and so it doesn't jump straight across and go whoop, whoop, but it goes oh, i've really got it in for man with a golden gun today but it goes down you know and then lands on like a a, a bit which is being built up so it's like a grade so it lands on like a down ramp and scrapes with sparks and, and all that shit do that but yeah, it's a bit boop. Never mind. Um, I like it. And I remember Speed won loads of awards at this like MTV or ITV movie awards. Something really tacky and embarrassing that Bob Monkhouse was presenting. I'm not exaggerating. And people were there. I remember Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden were there for best special effects that year. And they were doing it. And Generations, which I also heavily acquaint with 1994, but that was like January early. Um, that was up for best special effects and they announced it and then they announced the categories and then they announced the winner and it was speed and they go oh great and marina Sirtis was like oh great speed again and they're like yeah he's speed i don't know why i'm bloody here it was amazing so that's uh, my other sort of speed related memory <laughs> that's so bad the only thing i had to say about it all i mean i haven't seen speed 2 cruise control shepherd never seen it don't really fancy losing yeah. like two hours of my life i do life. remember i think because it was on the like the channel five trailer willem defoe saying like enjoying your vacation so far being <laughs> you know a proper hollywood baddie getting his paycheck and all that earning it bless him and that was on the advert for the you know, diet coke movie premiere type thing and so me and um, various people at university i think it was would often say to each other enjoying your vacation so far so i guess speed two has given us that um at least so but that's um, about it well it's fair to say that probably the ptsd alone for poor old annie sandra bullock's character after the <laughs> morning would be enough to mean that relationship is probably doomed but um you know i've ignored that too by the way for my sequel but i feel like the world felt was a bit of a bummer that they didn't make it those two because their chemistry is real and good in speed yes. and so i think that's part of the problem that's, that's worth like, yeah that's worth mentioning actually because it was true and i was i had nothing against patrick but they do have amazing chemistry and that was the film that launched Bullock. I mean, she'd been around for ages and she'd just done Demolition Man, but this made her like proper pow. And I believe Hammy Berry was at least up for that role, but she turned out, she turned it down because she said it felt like it would just be like, oh, it's the black girl driving the bus. That's a quote uh, from her. Um, and I'm like, I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't know if I, Guilford would have seen, I don't know. But in either way, 
um, she turned it down and did executive decision instead as an air stewardess. So there you go. But in any case, lucky Sandra Bullock and their chemistry is amazing. Reeves in that film is excellent. Yeah. And he, yeah, I remember the bit of like, you're a very good man, magnificent even, or something like that. And it's <laughs> it, that that's the only bit where it's like, oh, he tried to show emotion through verbal, you know, from vocalizing again, and that was a mistake. It got a bit much to do about nothing for a second, and everyone winced. Um, but you, know, you saw the actual bus like wobbled a bit for a second. But other than that, he is great. And oh, and a special shout out, the music in Speed is excellent. And that's another theme that goes around my head that I don't mention enough. Um, but the da, 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 da thing is great. Um, so I really like the music in Speed very much. Nice. And Dennis Hopper, uh, bless Dennis Hopper, he felt uncomfortable that the villain's motive was only greed and money, and he wanted some sort of extra reason. Um, but the uh, producers and Jan and Whedon said no it's just money because that's the world and he was like fine and bless him he sold it but that was something and I heard and I don't know if this is true Jimmy I just don't know if this is true but I think I read it in flicks at the time but Phil Collins's name was mooted connected somehow to the Dennis Hopper character in Speed whether or not they were thinking about it or they talked to him about it because he had been in some films, Buster, hello. So it was like, are we going to do a sting and bring Collins in? Oh, and I mean, God, he was fresh off hook. So and nonetheless, it didn't really happen and probably for the best, but that would have been an interesting universe. Phil Collins is a pop quiz, hot shot type of guy. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I, I think we'd be, for me, as a very... Um you know, personal thing. It's a bit of a trifecta of my favourite performance of all three. Dennis Hopper included, because I haven't really seen enough Hopper movies. Um, have you seen so Blue Velvet? No, so that's probably that's where I need have to... Have you watch. seen Super Mario Brothers? No. Well, then, you if you haven't seen the titans of cinema, then I don't know if you've got a Hopper <laughs> got, to stand on. That's why I said subjective at the top end. It's, very, <laughs> it's coming from a very, very, like, silly place with Hopper, maybe, but it's kind of one of my favourites. No, a true romance, I really like him in as well, to be fair. But anyway, that's certainly... I just realised that if Dennis Hopper hadn't become an actor and had like even become a dentist, he would be Doc Hopper. What a wasted opportunity. But anyway, I can't believe that's never occurred to me before. <laughs> but yeah, no, good great. for him. He's great. Yeah. But it's definitely my favourite Reeves performance and definitely, definitely my favourite Bullock performance. I actually found her quite grating in the 90s. I didn't like her in Demolition Man. I remember, I remember you didn't like her in Demolition Man. You told me. You said you found her annoying. And I said she replaced, oh God, what's it, Laurie Petty? Um, oh, yeah. Who, um, uh, you know, when it was, already, it was an Eric Stoltz situation and you were furious because I believe you liked her from... Conversely, wasn't she in Point Break? She so was. there you go, it's all connected. Nice. I, I remember you're always a Laurie Petty fan. Yeah, yeah, big fan of Petty, big fan of Ryder. <laughs> there you go, it's it's the hair, it's all, it's all the hair. All the hair. Well, Sheppy, if we are uh, ready, and if you're ready, we could... Oh, of course, remember shit tons of stuff. Um, I was sort of babbling slightly, just seeing if it would dislodge anything else I wanted to mention. Uh, but you're right, of course, it is probably a good idea to, to jump in um, and see what happens. I will just quickly 
before, because uh, you, of course, will have flying honours and be very, very happy. Okay. But I'm just going to scroll up and see. Uh, oh, yeah, basically, my little notes were music is amazing. Um, De Bont's cool. Uh, Homper wanted no money, meaning the thing I just said. Phil Collins, uh, exclamation mark. Whedon did a major rewrite to the extent that Graham Yost, who's credited as the screenwriter, when in the commentary on the DVD, Yost leaves before Act 3, saying, right, everybody, good night. This is it. Wow. Uh, so there you go. Um, and uh, Whedon's dialogue is there, if you listen for it. Oh, I remember in the cinema, the bit where the bus hits the pram was shocking. Yeah. And you know, at that point, I wasn't thinking they're not going to kill a baby in this type of film. I was like, fucking hell. And then it was filled with cans, and that's nice. Um, oh, and I also like, yeah, it's good, very effective. And also, Hopper, when he gets Annie at the end and wires her with explosives, and he says, like, it won't hurt Annie. I always find that's kind of unnerving because it's for a moment he's almost caring. And that's kind of like that makes it even more scary because just before that, he was all like, aha, hoo but then he's like, when it's when he's kind of nice for a second, it's like, oh. So I always remember that's cool. And I also want to make one note is at the beginning, we see Annie is late for the bus and she's running after the bus, calling to the driver. And the driver's like, oh, 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 and stops and lets her on. She goes, thanks and everything. But then Jack is running after the bus. And admittedly, he's like pounding on the door and he cracks the, the glass. But Annie is like, hey, don't let him on. Don't let him on. Which is like a little bit hypocritical um, of, of you know, the bullet. <laughs> um, so, so that's nice, but also kind of realistic and stuff. And everything would have been OK if they had had let him on. Um, because they wouldn't have then gone over 50. So that's nice. Um, and I think, uh, oh, Annie has amazing energy, and that's true. Um, oh, and yeah, and 94 is really all about speed and ma the mask for me. Generations, like I mentioned, Forrest Gump as well. When I think of 94, I think those are the ones that really stand out. Even, yeah, so that's nice. Um, and I think that's everything else. Oh, and at the end of my little notes, I wrote, I, um, Jim Jacket, exclamation mark. So um, you really did have your eye on that jacket. Wow. Which I, I had genuinely no recollection of that. <laughs> yeah. It was probably just like a passing moment, which you forgot about <laughs> immediately. And then I was just like, no, it's just, that's history now. <laughs> Nice. Um, well, so I, so wonderful. Maybe on my fiftieth birthday, that's something you you'll you'll buy for me as a nice little prezi. <laughs> yes, of course. It goes without saying. Um, I know I'm going to remember other things about speed that I want to mention, but um, we we should we should plow on. I can't wait to hear your your. Well, do too. wait, Sheppy, because this is going to be a very low bar to follow up. I'm not super happy with this, but. We we will, you know, I as I said, I sort of have done a sequel to the incidents of couldn't really think of um a uh you know a suitably inventive diehard honor, honestly. So I've I'll just say it now before I even get to the plot point, I've kind of gone back to the subways a bit in a in a way that's okay. a little bit different and haven't I haven't seen before, but still you know, nonetheless, it's it's keeping it in LA and it's keeping it with vehicles, and um, and it's a slightly deeper way to go on the on 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 the trains than they did at the end of the first movie. But but you know, look, man, this is 
this is 1.5 stars to maybe cruise controls one star so that's just let's set expectations <laughs> for that and i don't know whether to give you this i'm going to give you some of the cast now some as we go ship so it's a, it's a straight speed two i've gone 1996 i haven't even thought about whether that pushes out any classics but i just <laughs> i think but, it's okay yeah um, while we were sleeping can can survive <laughs> um, directed by Jan Debon. We've got Keanu back as Jack Traven, Sandra Bullock back as Annie Porter. I've got Joseph Gordon Levitt in there oh. as Joseph. I've just gone with the names, Sheps, because yeah, it's going to yeah. make it easier. Samuel. So L this is like he was young at this point, then, right? Yeah, like... he's young. He's he is in stuff. I looked it up, and he's kind of like I don't know. I say he's probably sixteen, seventeen. Pre rock or during. During, I think it's sort of during, yeah, he's just about to probably break a bit bigger. I need him to be able to cover the ages of about maybe 16 to 18 ish. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, so it's not too he bad. He was playing 16 to 18 until he was at least 32. So I don't <laughs> think you have to worry about that. <laughs> he's he's a very, very dark character, Shepard. He is the villain. I'll tell you this now. Um, so then we've got Samuel L. Jackson in this as oh. Sam. Um, and uh, and he's kind of going to be the, um, the 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 surrogate Jeff Daniels, um, and uh, <laughs> I've got Jason Patton some cameos here, Jason Patrick as Senator Patrick. <laughs> oh wow! Um, and just because it'd be fun to cast him, knowing what we know in our hyperverse. This is Patrick. playing God from Hyperverse Central. Yeah, absolutely. And then I've got uh, Britain's own John Hanna. As a geek, kind of Simon Pegg in Mission Impossible style. Britain's own. Team. Was that necessary? Sure. If you said Simon Pegg, would you have said Britain's own Simon Pegg? I think not. It's insulting to you, to John Hanna, <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> well, you know John Hanna's my buddy, so he'll be okay. He'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. you and him. You, him and Toblowski, I know. Oh, my God. Um. Anyway, uh, and then, little twist here, Sheps. Um. Beth Grant is in this. Um, she's a lady that played a character in the original Speed called Helen. And she's the lady that tries to get off the bus and the bus blows up. Um, if you remember that bit when the bomb goes off and, and, and she gets... Doesn't she go of... under? Yeah. She, yeah, you under. see. So, okay, I'm interested in that case because, I, I mean, that's a brutal moment. That's another 15 moment yeah. where she goes to get off, she goes under and you see her go under the wheels. Yes, yeah, rough. Uh, which is harsh. I'm yes. sure she actually was in stuff like Donnie Darko uh, as the godmother. Yeah. Like she's she's always, she's always that. that type. Yeah. Uh, just, um, just, just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm bloody. I might be forgetting something she said on the bus or something, but it doesn't really matter. Anyone can say anything when they're in heightened duress. But let me just. If she's a force ghost. I'm all for it. <laughs> well, look. Okay, let me give you this then. All right, let's let's get into it, and then that'll make sense because it will. That, that no, will no, no, that's okay. When it, if it unfolds, it unfolds. You don't have to <laughs> just spoil it. Um, so we open on a beautiful LA morning, um, and look. Let me just actually before I do this, the reason for and we're going to get right to it. Um, the reason for her coming in, I just thought like the the, the tricky thing with this stuff is. And they, Die Hard 2 has the problem as well. Like the wife is on the plane again, for God's sake. Like, yeah. How do you manufacture something that has the coincidence of people conflating again? Like, do you know what I mean? How do you do it in a way that means yeah. the characters have to be involved again? So that's always the problem, isn't it? But anyway, so let's see if I've done a good enough job of it. But 
Um, so we open on a beautiful early morning, super sunny. I've put in the poorer suburbs of LA. I don't really understand the geography of the city to tell you which ones. We're not talking like South Central. We're talking like between um, Helen. Uh, Beth Grant is fixing up her son's breakfast. Um, her son is Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Nice. has his head buried in his maths books. Um, we can see in the place a shrine in the corner of the kitchen come lounge to what we assume to be an absent father. For the main picture of the shrine, the, shrine, the, the father is in full Desert Storm combat gear. Um, there's no medals or anything in the shrine. There's just a personal tribute, a couple of family photos. Um, Helen is being well-meaning, if a little annoying, in her mummery. I put Joseph Gordon-Levitt at first seems a little nonplussed, then starts to get angry as she pushes and gives it the, your dad would be proud of you, but you have to think about your future. There are a lot of good colleges, et cetera, et cetera. And at the inference of his dad, Joseph gets very angry, storms out of the house onto his bike for school. We then follow Helen as she tidies the breakfast in the sink, into the sink, gathers her bag and catches the fateful bus. And we leave this scene with a morning, Sam. Hey, Helen. And she gets onto the bus. Oh, it's a smooth crossover. <laughs> we see Joseph Gordon-Levitt at school and he walks in. His teacher hands him his maths assignment, another A star. Um, he's something of a child prodigy genius. Um, and um, he's a little shy. He takes the form. Again, there's a little bit of pressure of where will he apply from teach in terms of college. Um, the class starts. It's a normal school day, only mid-lesson. There is some kerfuffle going on outside the classroom in the corridor. Joseph's teacher goes into the doorway and there's a kid running down the corridor and she gives it a get back to your lesson, you know. And the kid turns around and says, Miss, you've got to see. And Joseph's class and a good portion of the school gather around a TV in the next room. As a 24-hour news, the helicopter of 24 hours news is following a bus, the bus, on its route, and we're getting the helicopter view and the, the news coverage of, of the original movie. One of Joseph's chums whispers to him, that's the 2525, doesn't your mom take that one? And I didn't even know this is a little Easter egg, like 2525 is yet another one of your 50s, Sheppy, which is quite interesting and, and intentional. Oh, but, um, very nice. Anyway, Joseph watches the footage a little concerned until, of course, he witnesses someone that looks like his mother from a distance, obviously, try and leave the bus and a small bomb goes off and she goes under the wheels. Joseph bolts out of the classroom, the music swells and we get a pure 90s fugitive style, huge credit sequence, I said. But this movie I've intended here, Sheppy, is so 90s, it's ridiculous, I can't even tell you. <laughs> And um, but we get a hit. I've said we're basically 30 minutes into the movie by the time we get directed by Janderbunt almost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you mean about the fugitive. Um, and then, <laughs> and then the credits I've said here um, have something of a montage of two threads. We've got um, one is Joseph, um, deemed now, I guess, orphaned and deemed too mature for care, deciding not to go to college and instead hunkering down, obsessing over Jack Traven who is something of, um, by his own thing, by Jack's own thing, a muted and modest celebrity for his heroics in the first movie, um, but heroics that have been rewarded with medals of honour, keys to the city, promotion to head of the SWAT bomb disposal team, etc. Accolades that only stoke the flames of young, flames, sorry, of young Joseph when his mother wasn't saved and whose dad's own sacrifice was never recognised. It's not a spoiler to say Joseph's own obsession soon becomes application of his genius 
to a means of exacting bitter public explosive avengement for his parents. Also over the credits, we see Jack and Annie continue their relationship, but they haven't they haven't moved in yet. Just lots of cutesy Keanu Sandra moments. And I've said that um the uh directed by Jandabon is over a siren almost police squad style. <laughs> and we follow a SWAT team to a mall, um, shopping mall, where Jack and Sam, his partner Samuel Jackson, leave their vehicle um and enter with a couple of other support SWAT vehicles for a routine bomb call in inverted commas. This is the opening to the movie, um, and the, the kind of that first thing. And um and and the the sub I guess for the the amazing lift sequence in the first movie I've put here, and the score is building, reaching a ten out of ten. I just watched the trailer again actually this morning, which I wish I'd done just beforehand to put this. Uh-huh. A but there's a really nice um you know they do really awesome nineties heavy briefings like you know there's a bomb, <laughs> yeah. a bomb, and a bomb. But anyway, so um, imagine one of those you know because basically um. There is a bomb. It is in a lift again here. Um, but uh, Jack secures the um, the perimeter of the mall. And I put in uber efficient, empathetic, crowd pleasing fashion. You can just see Keanu, same haircut, same vibes, chewing his gum, like but being really cool. But securing the perimeter in the mall. Um, there's a large like takeaway style paper bag in one of those huge mall lifts that's been reported. For the mall, I'm kind of picturing Commando esque. It's um, and this whole sequence is actually just pretty wordless and nails from Jack and Sam. I've said it's not really the same wonderful banter as Reeves and Daniels with the whole, you know, shoot the hostage, which is an amazing play. And then he shoots him in the leg later. Just amazing. I didn't mention that earlier, but went. Um, yes. so they're, they're leading the SWAT team. I put a sweaty, tense moment um, where they're strapping themselves into their protective gear as the shoppers all look on um, in, in, you know, anticipation. Um, Jack calls the lift um, to get a look at the package um, and uh, the, the lift approaches and pings. The bag is big and suspicious. <laughs> but, um, Jack says into his comm, keep the perimeter back another 50 and the crowd are pushed back another 50. He approaches the, the bag. Loads, I put loads of cool bomb tension edits here. Sweaty cheeks and not just the facials is what I put. <laughs> I bet that's exactly. Jesus, I, I know that's what you do. <laughs> um, I've got then like Sam and Jack are dovetailing here, and Sam overlaps overlaps Jack for the last move, and I've put with an extended pokey thing, prizes open the bag, and uh, Samuel Jackson gives it a holy shit. And Keanu uh, goes, "What?" And he goes, "Never seen fries that size." <laughs> and basically, it's a false alarm. And a crossover ghost, but Ghostbusters Pulp Fiction junk food gag. <laughs> um, and anyway, the pair of them um, climb down from the lift situation. There's a little bit of bonhomie and banter with them finally. The perimeter is relaxed, the crowd is dispersed and back about their shopping business. Samuel says, If I had a quarter for every time, I'm not doing Samuel Jackson impression. If I had a quarter for every time there's been a fake call out, I wouldn't have even needed to take this transfer. And Jack says, reassuring to know the job's the job, whichever state. But just as Jack says this, a huge explosion rocks the corner of the mall, and it's absolute chaos. Probably at least a dozen casualties. Let's say perhaps none fatal. I don't really know what my death toll is in this, in this movie. I don't want it to be too dark. But um, you don't want to go full Snyder. <laughs> yeah. 
So the, the 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 thing being here, the paper bag was the dummy, and that there's been actually a real bomb, and it was there to distract. And we cut to Annie. Do you know what Annie's job was in the first time? I know she hadn't passed her driving test, but do you know what she's actually getting? No, she to? she had her license temporarily revoked oh, for it, speed. Yeah. That was um, yeah. But I'm not sure. I didn't do any research. I didn't check. No. To see. I don't know if we ever find out what she does. Well, I'm I'm saying she's an impassioned, you know, liberal character, and she's working for a a really nice senator, Senator Jason Patrick, um, in his office, oh, some kind of marketing type job or something, you know, and uh, helping him to to win the next seat election thing. Anyway, um, anyway, uh, I uh, they seem to get on well. Her and Senator Patrick, they have some nice banter. She ducks out from the office and um, this is the same day you know and uh and and she, to her regular haunt for a coffee and gives it a hey chuck and he's starting a little late as she walks in um but the gent starting a little late and pinning his apron we immediately recognize as joseph gordon levitt and he smiles a bit creepy um yeah. and um and and gives her coffee and senator patrick so maybe a little fawzy of the team and she takes a swig and just says this isn't my regular skinny cap and uh Chuck slash Joseph Gordon-Levitt gives it, oh, sorry, my mistake, Annie, and hands her another cup. Um, the news of the bomb in the mall is on TV in the coffee shop, um, and it's happened, and Annie just sort of says, Jack, and, like, um, takes her real coffee, leaves the shop. And I put in a real Buffalo Bill move. Um, Joseph then uh, touches the tip of the drink lid and then takes a sip of the coffee that Annie has left behind. Ooh. And, uh, anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> little um, lizard tongue <laughs> and we follow Annie a little bit she's calling Jack and like just checking in with him and making sure he's okay he's still in the mall and then we flip back to Jack and um, he hangs up the call to the Annie um, back at SWAT HQ um, they have pinpointed the payphone where the original bomb call came from to report the paper package um, and Jack and Samuel Jackson go into the back office of the mall um, as the area has been secured and look at the CCTV from the time of the call that was focused on that phone, payphone. A man is standing at the payphone with a cap, nose and mouth covered, sunglasses, nondescript clothes. Um, they hear the audio of the call and the person's voice is wavering on the call. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is effectively saying, you know, acting it out, Mr. Mr. I think there's a bomb on the lift, you know, but as he's saying it, the image of him is staring up at this camera that he knows is the CCTV giving the bird the whole call in a chilling little moment. The early evening with Jack and Annie of that same day, Annie's trying to cheer him up after the hard day at the office. Um, I've said it might be a nice twist if Jack's being the soppy one here um, uh, and wants to move in together, but Annie isn't ready to move in yet. You know, that's kind of the edge on this one in terms of their arc. And of course, she'll agree to move in with him at the end of after all the chaos that's about to transpire. But um, anyway, Annie leaves the place that night to go and stay at her place um and uh and we see joseph gordon levitt go back to the mall in this early evening in his barista uniform calm as you like broad as day approaches the lift and i've said <laughs> and take some i put who knows 90s style dna swabs in the way we didn't even understand the internet in the 90s <laughs> like, you know, of the lift and, um, and we follow him out of the mall again and then to Senator Patrick's home where the senator is up late working. Joseph, I haven't really put much detail here, Shep. This is real pitch stuff today. I should have warned you as well. Oh, it. Joseph kills Jason Patrick in brutal cold blood 
and leaves Jack and Annie's DNA traces all over the room and all over the crime scene. Oh, um, I've put many more breadcrumbs you could lay here around, you know, getting Jack's prints onto the weapon, etc., etc. But anyway, that's that. We'll leave that. And then it's the next day, for HQ, Jack and Samuel Jackson are puzzling over the CCTV, still trying to identify this dude. And um, and while they're doing so, there's a little, Jack, you're going to want to take this call. You know, it could be credible. It says it's the mall bomber. Anyway, the caller says over the phone through one of those speaker devices, Jack, there's a bomb at LA downtown police station in 20 minutes. You've got 20 minutes. I've alerted the news, Jack. It's going to be quite the circus. You don't want to stuff this one up too. And uh, and so basically Samuel Jackson and uh, Sam and Jack, <laughs> sorry, uh, they, they evacuate the police department, get get all, you know, start hunting around for it with their teams, desperately hunting for this this bomb, bomb at the LA downtown police station. Um, it's really Michael Bayish, I've said very shouty and they're like you know 16 minutes boom and they're still trying to hide <laughs> this thing you know <laughs> then they get to like 19 minutes and their attempt to find the bomb is futile there's no sense keeping on going they have to call it save themselves evacuate themselves from the station building retreat to the perimeter they get out of it they're like go 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 they get behind the, the perimeter with the other police that have been evacuated from it as well Jack turns to one of the other SWAT guys and goes, you got the clock? And one of the SWAT guys nods and just puts his hands up and goes, five, four, three, two, one. And we're braced for the explosion that doesn't happen. And um, and it's just quiet. And then a supportable SWAT phone rings. You know, God, it's one of those 90s tropes of yeah. how Joseph has the number, who bloody cares? Oh, yeah, I know. I love it. <laughs> we have Joseph's scrambly voice again saying, sorry, Jack, false alarm. And... Uh, and Jack, you know, Keanu's acting moment just goes, just stop. No one's died. You can turn yourself in. And, uh, and Joseph says, my parents have died. My mother on your watch, Jack, that's not no one. And Jack gives it to, I will find you. And Joseph says, I doubt that. Are you smiling for the cameras, Jack? And Keanu looks up at all the media and the hoopla and the circling choppers over the police station. And a couple of police enter the, the frame and say, Jack Travon, we're arresting you for the murder of Senator Patrick. You have the right to remain silent, yada, yada, yada. Evidence places him at the scene of Senator Patrick's murder. Police working on the theory that there's probably jealousy over this staged, perhaps, affair with Annie that Joseph's choreographed and pulled together with this scene and the fall of L.A.'s favourite hero. But let's be honest, just for the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> <but anyway. laughs> Um, epic stuff though epic oh, intricate building tension stuff with oh, nice meaty payoff you, Jeffy, bless you um jack gets um sam you know as he's being handcuffed you know who still trusts him to collect annie in case she's in danger and um and keanu and jack is temporary off, temporarily off the board and very goddamn it shouty about it um just as it's being put in the back of a meat wagon um the phones over at SWAT HQ are going bananas, including this one as well. Uh, and basically, there have been suspicious packages reported across the LA Metro subway train network. And um, the deputy SWAT, now in charge and caught between needing Jack's help, but acknowledging you can't have that help. Um, and I'm imagining him, and this is a recast, because in the trailer, there's that really cool police chief 
Um, and I'm forgetting the actor's name now. But is it, it the guy who plays Dyson from Terminator yeah, 2? it is. Exactly that guy. I love that guy. He's excellent, so I'm going to bring him in. But yeah. I had put here, I was imagining this guy as the deputy for Jack, as being Larry Brigman. The, uh, he actually plays the inspector in Die Hard with a Vengeance, sandy hair, moustache guy. Um, oh, oh, nice. But, you know, maybe we could recast. It doesn't really matter. Same character, really. Um, but anyway, he's now kind of running the show, but but nervous about it because he doesn't. He's trying to process what's going on with everything, and um and the scrambly voice over the call informs him there's several bombs on several trains. They've been activated, and with that activation, they are now weight sensitive to a degree of twenty kilograms, and no one can leave or enter a train carriage with a bomb on it. And they've got two hours before the bombs detonated. And this deputy guy goes, what are your terms? And uh, and we see Joseph outside a station subway entrance just talking normally, but obviously into his little scrambler on the phone. Yeah, I always yeah. love that as a little trope. It makes yeah. me happy. Um, he's like, come on, Deputy Brigman. You don't give a shit about my terms right now. I'll tell you them and you devote your resources to hunting me down. This now is not a good time to play my hand. I'll tell you my terms when you've exhausted your options and are only able to agree to them. You have the next stop to evacuate passengers from the other carriages, but after that, the train's got to keep going. I'll be watching, Deputy. So it's basically same sort of rules. The trains can't stop. Um, I'm loving that. I'm um, getting slight with a vengeance vibes and also blown away vibes. Yeah, uh, which I'm enjoying immensely. There's a real <laughs> 90s, actually. It's another 90s subgenre, the bomb baddie subgenre, which was then turned into the specialist. People love bombs for a moment. <laughs> And I, I feel like what I haven't really captured here is like he is reasonably young. So this would be a bit shakier and less confident, probably. But, you know, that's OK. Like, so is he still a bit, you can um, be proper evil Wesley Prussia child genius. We have to check how old he is in 96. I know it's pretty well. young. <laughs> okay. I think I've missed cars. It but... might be like 14 or something. <laughs> 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 uh, um, so, we have to check on um, that. And at, at the next point, we get this montage of several trains pulling into stations and passengers from non-bomb carriages being evacuated, but those with suspicious packages, doors remaining sealed shut during the evacuation, and people kicking off in those carriages wanting to be let out, but of course they can't, given the, the fragility of that, that weight distribution. And um, you've uh, you've been stopped once or twice for having suspicious looking package. <laughs> Let's stop talking about my package. Hello. Um, <laughs> now, listen, Sheps, I've gone and broken your cardinal rule here because I put here, of course, we get Alan Ruck Stevens giving it a lesson. <laughs> you know, my last trip to LA didn't go so well. I'm looking forward to seeing the museum and blood it out. I love it. You must have been bloody tittering into your conflicts just now when I was like lamenting this trope and knowing that you've got a ruck up your sleeve. And who can blame you? Bringing back the ruck. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm deep into the last season of succession. How can he not come yes. back anyway? But, um... You're having a ruckus. <laughs> so anyway, um, the SWAT department um, is, is, is tied up. You know, lots of the lackeys are out. I say lackeys of this bloody SWAT team. You know what I mean? Lots of the, you know, the, the team is out sorting out the, the, the stations. But Sam is taking a swerve here to collect Danny and investigate Jack's previous cases with, with Annie assisting him. And why, you know, they've got this breadcrumb of the mother. Why would this guy be avenging his mother? They do lots of research, yada, yada, yada. And Annie has a moment of like a, 
what about Helen like that? And then basically, you know, she remembers this lady that, that blew up on the bus and, um, and it leads to the right questions, identifying Joseph, bit of exposition, his dad having served, been injured, not been entitled to welfare, taking his own life. Um, this info, perhaps ridiculously, is enough to grant Jack a stay or reprieve, balance of doubt, to be bailed out of his predicament with the police department and join the fight. He calls in a favour, you know. Yeah, nice. Like, <laughs> I'm going out on a limb for you, Jack. You better pay off. Thanks, Sarge. <laughs> I've said, you know, just for tension and needs to be there as a beat, perhaps at this moment, Helen-like passenger stuffs it up on the train and one of the carriages blows up. Piano back now on the board um, with a, how many do we have left? The deputy says five identified. This is five trains all hurtling along with bombs on them. Um, Jack looks at the network map of the LA subway um, starts to piece this together, thinks about the boy's psychology, etc. And he goes, he doesn't care. He's going early. Like that. And he goes, look at the crossover. Keanu points to Glendale Station, where all the lines seem to intersect. And um, and he just... <laughs> just <laughs> Maybe there's a chance for Samuel Jackson to do what I put one of those amazing parcel style, where the police are all in one room, and someone is saying, you know, hey, you know, the murderer had the weapon, and uh, perhaps he was using... Something like, I don't know, and then someone from outside of the room who couldn't possibly have been listening into the conversation walks in and just says, a dagger would have been a good weapon to choose at this point. <laughs> That's stupid, I love it. I'm, I'm so happy whenever Nathan does that or anybody does that in Castle. Like, you know, they, they finish each other's sentences and they weren't even in the room. And brilliant. But anyway, so Keanu points to Glendale Station and uh, maybe a chance for Samuel Jackson to do one of those amazing Castle style, Glendale. That's crossover hub of departments, including LA County Department of Public Services. And I looked this up, Shippy, and there's loads of welfare buildings around there, like, you know, all these places that are there to, I guess, support people like poor Joseph's dad. Um, he's going to blow all the trains away at Glendale Station, take out three blocks, and that's basically the plan. And um, we get Ruck again on his train um, with a hey, man, do you know what's going on? And uh, the man he asks turns, shrugs, gives it a beats me. But the man is Joseph. And this is a suicide mission. The trains are hurtling for Glendale. He's going to freaking blow this thing, whatever happens, Sheppy. And, um, and, uh, and we'll all explode at the terminal. He's a deeply troubled young soul, is Joseph. Um, so anyway, Jack back at SYHQ. Jack is doing very little field work here, which is a big problem. And when it comes to the rewrite, we'll need to be addressed. Um, but Jack to John Hannah, our SWAT geek, Britain's own. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so proud of John Hannah. I don't know why. Uh, tell me everything you know about the Metro. And uh, John Hannah, uh, the SWAT geek, goes, look, it's a, it's a very similar network to that which you see across the world, you know, even the London Tube. Uh, three tracks, several interconnected systems, the capacity for a dozen carriages. And, uh, and Keanu gives it a like the tube. And, uh, and uh, John goes, aye, except you guys have air conditioning. And then Sheppy, no bloody idea about the science behind here. God knows, I didn't research this. Of course I didn't. Who knows? But the plan is to absolutely plummet the temperatures in the tunnels and the carriages simultaneously. And they've worked out the bombs can only be fertile or whatever or possible in certain conditions. So they're effectively freezing the trains and the bombs. 
And um, the only problem will be if Joseph has any way to counter this move from the SWAT team. So they need to know which train specifically and which carriage he might be on, basically. Um, and so um, they um, they do a fugitive style guess from the call he made before. It's another night, another recall of the fugitive from the call he made before he entered the subway station when speaking to the deputy and decipher from his weird wonky, even though he's got his wonky voice thing on, you can still hear the whole, like, you know, Chicago has an L. I love that scene <laughs> where they do that whole deciphering. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so from that, they guess which station he was in, which train he must be on, and a race against the clock to get to him in time. The freeze plan works. Um, Joseph, in the, at the moment that he realizes he's been foiled, immediately pulls out his um his backup detonator to warm things up again um uh with with the bombs however he's managed to scientifically you know counter that but jack has caught up to the carriage towards him there's fisty cups maybe i haven't even mentioned Alan Ruck here but course rock could be involved somehow (laughs) (laughs) jack is jack has um joseph pinned um only joseph starts to choke and he has an untraceable poison that um, has that that's one of those ones that is dormant for twenty four hours. But he took this to make sure he doesn't have to face any jail time for whatever happened, and just no longer wants to live anymore. But the same poison is a double insurance in case his plan to ruins Jack to ruin LA's hero Jack's life was thwarted too. And guess what? And he drank that same poison too out of that coffee. And um, Joseph dies, and Keanu does this gross Uber move, wipes the poison from his lips, manages somehow 90 style to send the sample electronically yeah. by some SWAT gizmo that's located nearby to John Hanna back at HQ, and um, and it's an MI3 style Uber run from Jack to the collapsing and you know potentially dying Annie to try and save her in the nick of time. Suffice to say, it's not ending 24 season one style. Uh, <laughs> everyone is happy and Annie is going to move in and happiness, happiness, ho, ho, ho with Jack, Sam and a packet of French fries. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. What a kick in the rucksack. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing, Jimmy. Uh, wow. Uh, so satisfying. And I really diabolical from from joseph yeah he's a real evil evil yeah yeah right probably laid that on thick enough at the beginning but uh no no it's it's stuff um and again using the the subway is great actually they were going to do a diehard film for a second on on the subway in la i don't know how much mileage you can get from it but the bomb situation is is great and the whole build-up with like i said before building it up so they get you know jack framed and everything yeah and the brutal patrick murder uh wonderful wonderful uh yeah really enjoyable jimmy um, oh, bless you man it's a roller coaster yeah a sequel to rather than a diehard honor if that makes sense like that's sort of where i went with it yes, I've got, yes. I, I got intimidated yeah. it took me honestly like just ages to even come up with it because i just kept putting myself under pressure to think of something cool you know right. and I thought, oh, the answer whenever you know, I get to a point with songs, I always think the answers are in the original. Let's just go right. back to it and have a look, you know. And then yeah. That's great. And to do it, it is kind of the diehard with a vengeance of speed films in that you open it up, but it's still got the thing. 
uh, no, I like it. It works. And then I, by the way, had the same thing. I, I took a moment. I was like thinking of the key concept. Um, yeah, like I, what what can it be? Um, but uh, yeah, well, so but we'll, we'll get to that momentarily if you like, Jimbo. That sounds delightful, Sheppy. All right, so Jimmy, um, I'll jump in, shall I? Yes, <clears throat> I'm excited. I'm going to say, first of all, I'm actually going to give the, ele well, the, the, the long elevator pitch first before I get into the nitty gritties, just because I think it's justified in that speed is such a, you know, it's built on the perfect elevator pitch, you know, just in terms of the concept, bus, if it goes over 50, the bomb turns on, if it goes under 50, it blows up. Perfect, great. Um, so going into speed, I think most people knew that premise. So with that in mind, I'm gonna mention my premise if that's okay with you yeah, yeah. Um, before getting into it. But so this is speed two, uh, 1997, but uh, um, and I'll give you the title in a minute. It's, it, it could be speed two colon this, but what I actually like to think is on all the posters, it's speed two colon this, um, but uh, but when you actually see the film, it's just this without Speed 2. That happens all the time. Um, happens with The Irishman. If you watch The Irishman, it's not called The Irishman. It's called the, uh, I Hear You Paint Houses. So amazing. So anyway, I'll, I'll tell you in one second the title. But first, it stars, oh, and it's Yander Bond, uh, starring Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, Ben Kingsley, now, I've got another character. It's either going to be Michael Bien or possibly William Fitchner. Um, but then I also thought maybe David Morse. But spoiler, I basically, I call him Bien all the way through. So in my mind, it's Michael Bien. And yeah. double spoiler, it's because it's the exact same character from he plays in The Rock. <laughs> so, you know. Um, we've got oh, yeah. Anne Archer. Uh, yeah. Um, so, um, which is nice. Uh, and oh, really, uh, a random one. We've got other random people, but um, Randall Tex Cobb, you know him? He always plays the potential anal rapist in every 80s and 90s prison movie, or like in Fletch Lives, or in Police Academy 2 or something. It's always him, and he's in um, Raising Arizona. Um, I as yeah, I can year. picture him, yeah. <laughs> he's great. Um, he looks like the monkey man from, it might even be Randall Texcoff in um, The Golden Child, possibly. I don't know. In any case, he's in this, but spoiler, he's like, for once, I've cast him as like a goodie. A double spoiler, this role, I originally cast um, Fred Dalton Thomas or Thompson, the guy who's in Die Hard 2 and loads of things. He's like the air traffic controller oh, in yeah. Die Hard 2, oh, yeah. and he's in loads of stuff. He was in it, but I changed it to Randall Tex Cobb to give him a break to play like a, a solid, good person for once in his life. Um, so the title of the film, the proper title is Altitude and it's Bomb on Plane. So we're going full um, executive decision. We're going elements of Die Hard 2. We're going um, a bit of Passenger 57, probably. Um, the plane is like the largest ever built, and it's like one of those like mega, mega, megas. Um, and it's like the new uh, flagship of this like cool airline. And for its maiden voyage, it's like highly publicized. 
and it will fly its guests like around the world. Um, and, and the idea is it's going to fly from New York east around the circumnavigating the, earth, the world and coming in and landing at L.A. Um, and I tried to check how long that would take, but it didn't matter how I phrased it. It uh, online only said, like, obviously, you know, going west to New York from New York to L.A. is much quicker um, than going around the world. So it wouldn't tell me, but it it's basically possible to get around the world in a plane in about 42 hours. But with a plane this size, it would be closer to 55 hours. But that, this is a film, so I'm saying it take it, you know theoretically will take the this particular plane in this reality 36 hours, and, that, and that's just the way it is in this world. Um, so a nutter has rigged the huge plane, which is carrying these like VIPs, uh, business cunts, billionaires, as well as lottery pleb winners um, who have won this like Wonka-esque thing. And, and and so altogether, it's about 20 passengers or something, 50% um, uber rich and 50% like happy plebs. Uh, and the, this first flight will, um, will go around. The airline um, that built the plane is kind of one of these mega, mega fat cat double corporations tied up in oil and tech and all this other stuff. So there's loads of shady shit, you know, deep into this massive company. Uh, the CEO of the plane division is one of the passengers, and he is a fat cat twat, apparently. Um, and once in the air, again, this is the elevator pitch, but it's in it's in Speed's elevator, so we're stuck between floors waiting to drop. Uh, once in the air, we discovered that if the plane rises, um, you know, it has to rise um, above a certain altitude, uh, or it will explode. Moreover, it must continue to rise 50 feet every hour uh, or it will trigger uh, the multiple devices hidden on board. And eventually it just has to keep rising. So it's going to reach the stratosphere and either like, you know, detach from the Earth's gravity and float off, or it's going to overheat or explode, or it's going to break apart, or it's going to freeze and sink and lock and explode while breaking apart. So it's all going to be nasty no matter what. Um, so, that, that, so that's basically the, 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 the long elevator pitch. And also, Annie is a passenger. She and Jack won this lottery, which is how they got on there. But also, it's, it's, not, a, it's not hidden. It's not even a twist that they won or they were given these tickets because they became mini celebs after the bus thing. And it's like a, you know, an advertising gimmick, basically, to get them on board. So that, that's the in. That's why... Um, but Jack has a big Barney, um, and so and they say nasty things to each other, so he doesn't get on the plane. Um, so, so I think that that kind of sums up, um, and I think I'll just sort of get get on it from there. So that's the the uh, the outline of altitude. I can't, um, and that's an amazing like way to pitch an elevator pitch in speed elevator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll see if anyone survived it. So speed to altitude. Um, opening uh, the streets of LA, a car chase through the night. Um, we see Jack and his partner, who in my mind is Alex Winter, but it's it's not Alex Winter, it's just not. Um, they're speeding <laughs> through uh, the nearly deserted back streets in downtown LA. On the radio, the partner is like um, keeping, you know, warning off other cop cars, telling them that the situation is under control and this is Jack's bust. Uh, the chase ends with Jack doing something cool, cutting off the second car, but then the second car then performs an even cooler move, in capitals, evading Jack, 
pulling off one more cool move before screeching to a halt and Jack and the partner skid up next to it and Jack jumps out and throws open the fleeing car's door and we reveal the driver is Annie and she looks up and is kind of like, you got me, kind of weakly, yay. And we learn that um, you know, through an angry walking exposition scene between the two of them, uh, that the couple uh, are not new to this sort of shenanigan. And in fact, uh, this sort of act, uh, antic, was common in the early stages of their relationship. But now I'm going to say it's like either a year, or maybe it's even real time, and it's three years later. And she keeps trying to keep the original thrill alive. But he's like, that's not what a relationship is. It should mature, grow, be something different. And it can't always be like pow, pow, pow. Um, and but she she doesn't see it that way. And she says, you know, tonight was a last ditch effort to sort of rekindle something that she feels they've lost. Um, and you know, they, as all this is going on, they walk past like the partner who's leaning against the car, looking smug, as police partners often do. And uh, Jack's partner, who I haven't even named. He's like, hi, Annie. And she's like, hi, Frank, or whatever. Um, so I guess he's called Frank. Annie is trying to get Jack to change his mind about this lottery situation because they're meant to be flying the next morning to New York where this whole global mega flight is leaving from. Uh, but he has been looking for excuses. Um, and so she wanted to grab his attention with this car stunt. And Jack is like, we didn't win those tickets, Annie. They're a publicity stunt for the airline. A cheap attention grab. And Annie's like, who cares? It's a trip around the world with free champagne. Pure bullock. And that's probably the trailer moment. <laughs> uh, and he says they'll talk about it at home in a few hours after his shift ends. And Annie walks away. Uh, and at police HQ, you know, the sun's kind of coming up in the background through the windows, you know, classic. And uh, Jack goes to his desk and phones home. Uh, but uh, to where he is living with Annie, but there's no answer. And he checks his messages and she's left a fairly scathing one for him. Um, and, and, you know, we don't, you know, we just hear this, of course, in the tape. But she's like, you know what? I came tonight to try just one more time to get you to meet me halfway on this, on anything. And then, like, all weary. And now I'm just tired and I'm just glad you're not coming, Jack. You know what I was most looking forward to about traveling around the world? It was the coming back home. But now, honestly, it's the leaving part. That's the bit that's really doing it for me. And he's sort of trying to listen, but the workplace, of course, is really hectic and busy and phone lines and screaming people. And so he's leaning over the machine trying to hear. And Annie's like, I don't know what's pushed you away. Was it me or are you just scared? That's really the problem, isn't it, Jack? You're the bravest coward I ever knew. And she essentially ends the relationship, uh, which shakes Jack up. Um, <clears throat> and so... Um, he's like, he calls the apartment again, but she's already left. Across the squad room now, his boss catches his eye, and I'm going to say it's the same guy from yours, because why not? And um, Jack is like, Captain, you know I said I wasn't going to take that vacation? And the captain's like, don't worry, Jack. If you're missed, they'll just say KIA. Who'll doubt it? And Jack dry is like, thanks, Cap. And he races to LAX, but he misses Annie. And he um, and so he gets the next flight to New York, which will arrive a couple of hours after Annie's. So in JFK now, New York, of course, Annie steps off this like really shitty economy plane that she's taken, um, which I guess takes about four and a half hours, this type of flight. Um, and she's surrounded by like smelly and loud families and screaming babies and arguing couples. And she looks all disheveled and shit, uh, to say the <laughs> least. 
much, you know, like fights through the crowd while they all flock to queue and squawk at the main passport control gate. And Annie approaches like a quiet desk with this special airline on it. I haven't even named the airline. Golden airline, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then she's bored at first by the snippy, uh, pristine airline attendant, who then looks lazily up and assesses Annie's dishevelled appearance with bored contempt. And Annie's like, hello, and, you know, hesitantly shows her the VIP ticket to the to the staff member and the sniffy lady glances at the ticket and then her eyes pop and suddenly it's all mega fawning and drooling and the attendant immediately speaks into a little radio all shrill like a VIP a gold gate VIP a gold gate and immediately like a little airport buggy you know almost cartoonish goes <laughs> and screeches up next to them and it's like um, and everything is instantly let me take your bag ah complimentary drink while we drive you to the vip lounge miss and all of this and she's like oh my goodness oh and annie goes full bullock and is loving it and the buggy whisks her past like the line of like ice cream stained sweaty plebs from her flight who all stare with indignant jealousy and Annie is like whisked like really comically fast through the airport to like the, the, the VIP where it has like loads of different security things, but she's shown through all of them like immediately. And it's like Uber, Uber, Dubai plush, if you know what I mean. You're nailing the bullock of it all, Sheppy. Absolutely Thanks. nailing it. She's just Thanks, she's perfect. You're getting the art, all the way she talks, her motivations, everything. I really felt like I totally underwrote Addie of mine and she became a damsel almost which is not her character that's the other thing yeah. I, I, I yeah I, I i had a problem i wanted to do but yeah thank you so annie is shown into the meg plush vip lounge uh, and she's the first passenger to arrive it's uber spacious and you know dubai nice as i said she is uh, pondering a pre-takeoff massage and a crepe from like this chef standing in the corner and her fellow passengers start to file in and we are introduced to them all in dribs and drabs. And we intercut with this and Annie's interaction with these passengers. And we cut to the control room, which is, you know, the, the air tower. But it's all privately owned because it's all due to this massive corporation. And in the control room, we also have the introduction of some of the ground uh, team. And we meet the airline owner, etc. Et so the passengers in the lounge are two groups. We've got the lottery winners and the mega rich. And, you know, there's no mingling. Everyone has their side of the room. In the pleb camp, we have an Alan Ruck wannabe, um, maybe William H. Macy, maybe Tony Goldwyn. Um, the recently divorced dad with his estranged teenage daughter, who is classically moody. And we also have an old lady who has never been anywhere or done anything like a big trip before, who won the lottery, and she's like, oh. We have a young pair of newlyweds who are act all in love, but we learn later they only tied the knot for selfish reasons and they bicker and they're selfish and horrible. And there's also a liberal arts teacher who at first is at first scathing towards the super rich uh, passengers, but we learn is a, a wannabe capitalist. Not many of these people ever turn up again, by the way, but they're there and you know, yeah. <laughs> In the snob camp, we have like this Iranian, um, uh, Iranian oil tycoon who's young and handsome, and he's not nasty. He's just a bit vain, but he's nice to Annie. Um, you know, he's sort of awkward, of course, in this place, um, and they swap sort of uh, banter. And then we have like um, oh, this guy who's called Gil Farum, 
apparently, a young man who appears at first to be a grungy lottery winner, but turns out actually to be part of the super rich, and he's like a tech mogul giant, you know, and he's like 25 type. Um, we also have Nate Billings, who is JT Walsh, um, and he's the ruthless CEO of the plane company. In the control room, you've got the mega owner, um, but this guy is like in charge of the plane branch specifically. And this is JT Walsh. He's in a nice suit. He's a selfish twat. Um, Travelling with him is Mindy, his quote-unquote secretary, who's I refer to a lot as a blonde bimbo, but only in her projected image, because she's a pure Pamela Stevenson Superman 3 type. Um, you know, she's pure, pure arm candy and giggly and bimbo-y, um, but, you know, she keeps being caught reading like but you know probably nothing like mega she's like keeps being caught reading like super advanced sudoku and she keeps hiding it behind like a travel mag or something so you know <laughs> it's not even that she's like mega mega she's just clearly not a, a total dullard and she seems nice um um but you know um yeah i mean i don't know who plays her honestly because in my mind it's a cross between uh pamela stevenson and um Anna nicole smith in pure naked gun free mode so anyway it's that type um we also have a famous rapper um who is called outreach and i don't know who plays him maybe ll cool j in 97 and his mini entourage the i just bought a condo here of it all but arrogant um and so on right. so on um, and another we have like a right-wing senator type lady and suzanne archer and she's always been scared of flying, but being on the flight raises her worth in the eyes of voters. So she's doing it for that. And we have a few more as well. As the passengers file in, we have Annie strolling around the VIP section, taking it all in, being smiley to the staff and taking a cheeky grape from the impressive fruit arrangement. As Annie has a nice time in the lounge, we intercut then with the ground team, performing last minute checks on the mega, mega plane, as well as the ground tech crew, all in the plane's mega hangar. And the ground team radio one engineer is called Norman. And they call him the engineer and they say, you need to check on like a flashing light on the panel near engine two. And Norman is a nice working stiff with like a, a hard hat and a clipboard. And I've called him Norman because I see Norman Lovett from, you know, who played uh, Holly in Red Dwarf. That's exactly who I see. <laughs> um, so he gets on the radio and he's like, copy that. And he has like <laughs> tiny low. banter. I know, I mean, he has to be. He has a uh, tiny witty banter with control. And he walks through the hangar, which is now almost empty, uh, past Gary, the cool looking security guard. And then beneath the massive plane, among these huge coils of wire and machinery. And um, Norman, he, he nears the area which he's been sent to. And he sees pure like the beginning of speed hunched over like this panel is like a figure in black overalls uh, near the belly of the plane. Norman gets closer and we see a uh, reveal that he's in a black hoodie and, and he's got like a, and Norman is like, hello, who is that? Do you have clearance and all of that, etc. And as he gets closer, the hunched over figure slowly turns around and we see that he's wearing a mask, kind of like a cross between a black hockey mask and a pure Squid Games guard. And Norman reacts to this as the figure stands and faces him directly. 
and it seems like this is the moment the Norman's obviously going to die when suddenly Gary, that cool-looking security guard, pops up and he clocks the matter and he draws his piece and cool guard Gary is like, hey, freeze! And uh, he has the nutter bang to rights and the nutter knows it and he does freeze and slowly raises his hands. And it actually looks like we've stopped the film before it's ready to begin. And Norman looks at Gary and he smiles all shakily. And then a second faceless nutter wearing the exact same mask and get up emerges smoothly out of nowhere behind Norman and sticks a long thin blade through the back of his neck and out of his throat and it takes Gary the guard half a second to react and then he spin turns and points the gun in a cool way at the second nutter and he's in Gary's sights for less than a second when the first nutter smoothly pulls out his own gun and shoots Gary in the head. The two faceless nutters now regard each other silently across the flight deck and then dart off in different directions, leaving the corpses where they lay. And so then we cut back to more guests filing into the VIP lounge. We have a tycoon and his PA Smithers type. And we have Annie trying to be friendly, saying hi, but he's nice enough, but a bit sniffy. Um, the ruck single dad wannabe comes in with his bored, unimpressed Walkman wearing, baggy jeans toting, slouching 14 year old daughter who ignores Annie's sunny greetings as well, but then in, a, in fairness, she goes straight to the buffet. Um, and Annie is friendly to the ruck, who is perhaps a bit over eagerly friendly back in a cool dad sort of way, which makes the daughter sigh disgustedly, slinking even further away. Annie, of course, then makes friends with the old lady uh, who's getting a coffee and even the teen girl kind of gravitates over, sort of standing a bit separately, uh, hanging with Annie and the old lady are like the best options in this like, slightly intimidating room. Uh, um, and then like the, but the girl like sort of talk with the, the, the old lady is very nice. And, um, and you know, the rapper with his mini entourage come in and the teen is all up for it and she's a big fan and she tells the old lady who this rapper is and that he's a big deal. That's outreach. An old lady says she could go and say hi. And the old lady's like, oh, famous people are just like the same as everybody else. I bet that young man would be thrilled to be treated just like a regular old Joe. And the teenage girl's like, he must be so sick of fans coming up, hassling. And old lady, ah, oh, but you're not just a fan, are you? You're a fellow passenger. Never let fear stop you from doing what you want. That's what I say. And then she just suddenly turns on Annie and says, that's right, isn't it? And Annie is totally caught away, unawares by the old lady. Uh, and she's been scrutinizing this huge goldfish bowl filled with jelly beans. But Annie is suddenly sort of sucked into this conversation and she just sort of smiles, not really wanting to get into it. And the teen is like, okay, I'm, do I'm going for it. And the old lady like, add a girl, dear. And um, so the teen goes over and crosses the room to where the rapper is sprawled with his cronies. And the teen sort of says, hi, I, I really like your music. And the rapper is proper like regards her over his shades, you know, classic, and is too cool for school. And he's like, yeah, thanks. Well, if you're not here to bring me a Royster on the rocks, then maybe you can just take your little Nike knockoffs and scooch back over to your side of the room, you dig me? And the team turns right around and blushing furiously, hood up, headphones on, hugging herself, recrosses the room. And as she passes Annie, not slowing or even looking, the teenage girl says to Annie, rather unfairly, thanks a lot. And Annie's like, sorry. Um, 
So, meanwhile, Jack is playing. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? <laughs> I like it. I like how much you're enjoying both Bullock Sadie, which is at your daily completely, and, uh, and then just like, <laughs> just like the, you know, 70s disaster movie style set up yeah. <laughs> with characters in the room. And like, I can just see where you, you've you gone rampant, Sheffy, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah. So that's nice stuff. Meanwhile, we have Jack Landing at JFK and he hurries too to the VIP lounge, but he doesn't have his ticket because it was like a double thing and he's treated far less well than Annie was. And he tries using his LA badge, but no one is impressed, especially the private security personnel, which all for this hangar and for this flight and this terminal. And Jack like, tries to tell the security guard that he's a lottery winner. And he's meant to be on board, but they're having none of it. And Jack infuriatingly sees Annie through the plastic partition inside the lounge as, like, all the passengers are now cooled on the PA and all start standing and gathering their shit. But she doesn't see him. And he, like, runs over and does a pure Jack and bangs on the glass. Um, and he, maybe, like, the old lady looks over and sees, but kind of, like, tuts. You know, there's one everywhere you go. Uh, and the security step up and back Jack away. And Jack watches helplessly as Annie, you know, leaves the room to go, you know, going to be called to the plane. And the passenger's bored. Annie is nice to the glamorous male flight attendant and maybe just a little bit flirty. Uh, the plane is huge. It has multiple levels and sections from like communal lounges with bars, etc., to like a games room with pool tables and arcade games and a roulette table and all that. And an observation deck which has like this transparent, like you get on some on trains, like a transparent section on the roof uh, and wall so you can be there and just like see the clouds and shit, allowing amazing views and shit. And maybe even a little room with a small swimming pool. And in the communal in rooms with like plush individual white leather spinning seats and all that, the passengers now take their seats for takeoff. And one passenger now arrives out of breath late, a bit sweaty and a bit flustered. And this turns out to be the owner of a famous Brazilian football club. And he acts a bit shifty. Spoiler, I don't think I mentioned him again. And this is a misdirect. Um, <laughs> back in the terminal, Jack is being escorted away from the gate when he hears a, on the PA or maybe on the guard's radio. Um, it's like, Mr. Asterix, come to phone green. Mr. Asterix, to phone green. And Jack clocks the security reacting. And this is of the code for something. And Jack states again, look, guys, I'm a cop and all of that. And they pass like a little shop, maybe. And Jack runs in and grabs like a mag spinning from a display. And against his better judgment, he runs over and shows his like on the cover is like um, a yearly round up edition or something, which is 10 or so people like men of the year from last year featured on the cover. And he's one with hero cop splashed on it. And this is a major theme where he doesn't want the fame of being recognisable, uh, whereas Annie has done more successfully. I even had maybe that Annie wrote a book about like surviving stressful situations and did a bit of talk show low level stuff. And now it's dying down and the 15 minutes of celebrity is over and Annie's cool with that. But Jack is like really relieved and he, that was a big problem for him in terms of their relationship, or at least it was like an excuse. He nice. Um, so, um, but he grabs the mag and he says, look, look. And uh, one of the security then recognizes him and Jack's playing along like, yes, it's me, Jack, the bus cop. 
And so he convinces the security that he, you know, he is, he, he's kind of a VIP. And they're like, look, we're not letting you through without a ticket. No ticket is no ticket, but they do agree to take him down to the hangar. He's like, okay, but that's my girlfriend on there. If there's any problem, I want to help trick it out. And they're like, sure, you're on a magazine, why not? So they go out there um, to the plane, which is now taxiing out of the hangar onto the runway. And they're in now the, the, the empty hangar and they find Jack and the guards find Norman and Gary. And Jack's like, call it in. And he pure Keanu's out of the hangar with the guard in a, <laughs> like a security mini car. And they bez down the runway chasing the plane. And uh, Jack gets the guard to drive and go full speed whilst he uh, takes the radio and is screaming, like, stop the plane. And they're driving alongside the plane with Jack, like, leaning out of the open car door, like, trying to wave to the pilots and, and everything. And inside, all the passengers uh, are all, like, just chill, chilling out, not noticing, just ignoring each other in this spacious takeoff. <laughs> and then Annie is reading, like, an in-flight magazine. And we see the headline of the article she's reading is, when your toxic, when toxic boyfriends are in your head, massive exclamation mark. And then on the opposite side is the old lady, and she's looking out the window, and she sees the speeding car like pull alongside with Jack hanging out the window. And the old lady tuts again, recognizing Jack, and she comments that some people just don't know when to quit. And Annie kind of like distractedly half looks away from the mag for a second and out of the window, and she sees Jack. And then she turns back to the mag and continues reading and then does the classic double take and looks back. But by that point, the car is accelerated and taking Jack out of sight. And Annie kind of looks and then looks back at the magazine <laughs> and looks at the window. And she's like, Jack? And then we go to the uh, in the cockpit and the pilot and Colin, who is the co-pilot, um, are taxiing and readying for takeoff. And no one sees the speeding car or Jack. In ground base, we have Randall Tex Cobb who is the main air traffic grizzled main dude. And he tries to get the pilots on the radio, but someone or something seems to be blocking the frequency. And now the plane takes off and the jet wash almost fucking, you know, Jack and the car and the guard, and they, they have to stop and it almost you know, flips the car. And they skid to a halt on the runway. And Jack and the guard see the plane rising in a cool shot against the rising sun and flying away into the distance. And Jack turns to the guard and he says, we've got to stop that plane. That's got to be a trailer moment, surely. And we establish that someone on the ground is fucking with the machinery and, and stopping the contact. Jack is allowed into base camp and we try to avoid too many die-harder moments, uh, die-harder moments. Um, but, you know, what can you do? Inside base camp, we have uh, the air traffic veteran cool guy played by Randall Tex Cobb with a toothpick and maybe a cowboy hat. We have the plane's owner. This is the uber fat cat, Nasty. And he's played by Ben Kingsley. And we have some security, um, like head of security, ex-Navy SEAL type guy who's now working in the private sector. And he, I've just got Michael B.N. Maybe it's Fitchner, maybe it's David Morse, but I'm going with B.N. Um, and it, just because he was in the wrong. And he clashes with Jack, of course, but he also digs his style. Uh, BN says, you're the guy who spotted the green phone call. Not bad, etc. And uh, all the ground crew are suspects now, as we learn, um, you know, that one of them had to have access to, to do this. And we lean into BN, of course, and it all, the whole Die Hard 2 vibe of it all. And Jack is all says, like, the radios are being blocked by the same person who gained access to the plane. 
and fat cat owner Kingsley poo-poos this, but a, a cool airport guy, Tex Cobb, says Jack's right. And they're about to disconnect and reboot the entire system to reopen communication with the plane when suddenly the radio goes pure staticky, pure Jimmy maneuver with a scrambled voice coming over the speakers. And he's like, I am now in control of the plane and they all need to back off or he'll turn the plane around right now and crash it into Manhattan. And BN reacts, shouting into the radio, those are innocent people up there. You can imagine BN doing that. And BN and grizzled air traffic <laughs> chief Cobb, they're both on Jack's side, saying they can't antagonize the nutter. And fat cat Kingsley again poo-poos everything. On board, only having been in the air for a few minutes, the pilot and co-pilot discovered that the radio's down. Colin, the likable co-pilot, says it's probably nothing and that it should just keep going. But the main pilot is a bit more seasoned and he doesn't like the look of it. And he turns the plane around just to be safe. And we see the passengers now react as the plane swings around. And Annie knots her brow quizzically at the shadows move from the glasses on the table, pure Last Crusade style, as the sun shifts through the windows. And the rapper is like, what's this, a victory lap? And the plane is coming back into land and the landing gear is still down. In the control room, the scrambled voice comes on the loudspeaker and he's like, the plane isn't going to land. You can stop that right now. Trust me. I know. Let me show you. And we see a gloved hand holding like this large and chunky kind of handheld controller, which is all filled with like a little screen and various buttons and things and dials. And the hand clicks and flashes across the consoles and the controls. And he disconnects the landing gear by remote control of the plane. And one by one, the eight massive wheels come off. Clang! From, from the landing gear and fall as the plane is rapidly descending into the airport. And inside the plane, people are like reacting as the plane is rocked with each disconnect, but as the weight, of course, shifts drastically, but it's not too serious. They're like, oh, what the hell is that? Uh, the landing gear, of course, is comprised of the massive wheel, and these are huge because the, the plane is so large, as well as the metal rigging, of course, and the hydraulics. And like bullets, these plummet uh, from the plane at a sharp diagonal, smashing into the airport like metal meteors. And some of the wheels and the metal gear smash to the ground, some fly diagonally, smashing in through like the gate viewing windows of the airport, making people scream and scatter in the departure lounge. One wheel bounces off the tarmac and shoots into a petrol truck, which of course explodes, causing the neighboring luggage cart to also explode, sending many suitcases flying up in a fireball, some opening in midair and raining down flaming clothes and accessories and laundry all over the immediate area. Flaming bloomers float down to the runway. And this, of course, is the first big money set piece of the film to wake everyone up. Um, with no wheels, the plane has to rise again, uh, and we see the, a gloved hand press one more button, disconnecting the last wheel from the undercarriage of the plane, and it falls. And inside the tower, Jack, etc., watches this uh, it's like as it sort of almost seems to come at them in slow motion as it gets closer and closer. Then Jack is like, down! And everyone ducks, and the wheel smashes in through the, the tower's window of the airport crashing into a bank of monitors and equipment as fleeing workers scatter just in time and the plane rises, resuming its original heading, flying out east to sea. And, in, and all the remains in the tower, you know, all spa sparking fucked consoles and shit, and everyone's watching 
uh, the departing plane and uh, Vandal Tex Cobb chief is like, what the hell do we do now? And BN is like, we've got to stop that plane. And Fat Cat Kingsley, we can't stop it. Nothing can stop it. We're completely locked out. And whoever's controlling it is locked in. And Chief Cobb says, there's got to be something we can do. And Jack says, there is. And they all look at him. And Jack says, someone needs to get on board that plane. And that's probably a trailer moment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Annie and the passengers discover the truth, maybe via the pilot. Maybe the pilot says, oh, sorry, folks, and tries to play it light. But then the cackling nutter interrupts on the speakers. Um, and the passengers all hunker, trying to decide what to do. And naturally butt heads. And there's snobbery from the oil guy saying the vote should only be between the investors and, frankly, the rich. And of course, Annie is having none of that, saying you know, everyone you know, deserves a vote here for what we do. And she's rallying everyone. Uh, and the cool Iranian dude who is sexy and he takes her side. And they're now told, told by the, the, the voice on the speaker, the plane uh, has six miles to go before the Earth's troposphere, which then becomes the stratosphere. It is between these two layers that the plane will either freeze up or get super hot, depending on the angle of ascent and friction uh, of the atmosphere. Also, they're all told of the plane's bombs. Some are on large, uh, some are large, some are smaller, some are rigged as booby traps. Um, others are rigged to like anti, you know, sort of mini, um, is it altimeters? Um, so literally things that chart your, your, your height. Um, yeah. oh, I think that's how you say it. I don't you know that, I'm going to yeah. say altimeter, and it might be altimeter, but anyway, um, the thing that chart how how high you are. They're all rigged to the bombs, of course, to, to, to make sure that the ascent has happened 50 feet every hour, otherwise they will blow. Um, and also if it sinks too low, back below the pass marker, it will, it will blow again. Uh, now they're flying well out over the ocean. Uh, Nate Billings, uh, J.T. Walsh, the, the CEO passenger, he barges into the cockpit and, of course, starts ordering the pilots around. And he orders against Colin, the co-pilot's wishes, that the pilot take away this madman's power and dump the plane's petrol. And Nate, uh, J.T. Walsh, is like, you think this is my first high-pressure power play? Yes, he's a real Ellis wannabe. And Annie and Colin uh, say, don't do it. But the pilot is bullied by his boss and he indeed dumps the petrol. Colin, the co-pilot, is told by the pilot to escort Annie um, out of the cockpit and is sort of followed by a smug um, you know, CEO. Um, and then the speaker sparks up and the nutter's voice comes into the plane again, saying the petrol dump was unfortunate, etc. And uh, we see again the handheld control with lots of buttons and switches being operated by the hand again. And it's beep, boop, bump etc. And suddenly the door to the cockpit swings shut and closes and locks, leaving the pilot inside alone. And Annie and Colin try and open it, but no dice. And then the nutter says, an example of power, real power, is obviously necessary. And one more boop on the controller and an alarm starts blaring inside the cockpit and the pilot is horrified. No! And then the entire front section of the cockpit, the windscreen and the front section of the roof, unseals, detaches, and kind of folds up on itself like a car's automatic sunroof. And the pilot screams as air blasts him. And then he's like pulled drastically out of frame. And in, and the rest of the plane, the whole thing buckles and bucks wildly. And everyone is rocked drastically as the front decompresses, of course. 
and then it reseals and closes up again. And then the, the door to the, uh, the cockpit opens, uh, unlocks, and you know, opens with a slight hiss. And Annie and Colin and you know, JT Walsh stare at the empty cockpit uh, with everything fucked up inside and the pilot, of course, being blown out and away. Um, so now they're, they're one pilot down and very low of fuel. Uh, the rest of the passengers learn all this. They've been told by uh, J.T. Walsh uh, um, that the, uh, and Gil, the young tech mogul, that for this plane to be controlled in this manner, there has to be someone on the ground operating the security systems, but also there has to be someone on board the plane, as functions such as interior commands can only be operated on board. Uh, so someone on board is definitely in on this, which is another reason the CEO thought dumping the fuel would be a good idea to cool this nutter's bluff because he doesn't think he's going to want it to crash. We establish that there's no one else on board hiding, by the way, via thermal imaging or some such. Um, so now the passengers go a bit Lord of the Flies and mutiny. Um, they blame Colin, the co-pilot, as he conveniently wasn't present when Nutter was on the speakers. And also he left the cockpit, etc. So they round on him, scared, angry humans, and they attack poor Colin. And Annie defends him, saving his life probably. But Colin is whacked hard, smacking his head and falling down unconscious, bleeding from the forehead. Um, so now no one is buying the plane and autopilot is totally disabled and fucked. And the plane is now slowly sinking towards explosion height. Uh, no one is noticing, too busy infighting, and Annie is the only one who's looking at the controls, seeing the declining you know, um, altimeter going down. And Annie shouts, but is ignored, and then must just grab the controls herself and pull, pulling up on the stick before explosion altitude is reached. So now we have Annie flying the plane, uh, which is now very low on fuel. And she speaks all of this into the radio, pure, I mean, it's hard to avoid an airplane sort of situation, but she speaks into the radio and Jack, but at home base, freaks out hearing her voice and he grabs the speaker and he's like, Ernie, Ernie, and he tries to speak with her, but it's, it's only one way. So Annie says what's going on, but doesn't get anything back. And then the nutter addresses the New York uh, ground crew again. And they're told if they don't want this party to end before it really gets going, they need to get a refueling plane up there. It's been established that the plane needs to climb uh, 50 feet an hour. At base camp, they work out that since the device has been armed and the plane now must continue to rise, if they want to refuel, it has to be soon or else the plane will be too high to perform its procedure. And Nutter knows this, of course, so time is of the essence. So ground control can't really contact the FBI and they don't want to. They want to keep it all hush-hush anyway. And they don't have time to scramble BN's team. Uh, so it must either be BN or Jack. And BN is saying it's his responsibility. He works for the airline, so it's his authority, his jurisdiction. And Jack says that the plane is an international air, so it's no jurisdiction. And also, Bien works for the plane company, which means he's been monitored probably by this nutter, and he needs to be organizing a full-on assault, which if it's necessary. Um, if Jack tries to get on and doesn't make it during the refuel, no one, you know, no harm, no foul, no one knows he's there in the first place. And Jack's like, no one knows I'm here. And Bien's smiling despite himself. You're the wild card, huh? And Jack says, all my life. 
trailer. So <laughs> Jack was trailer. <laughs> I know. I mean, obviously, yeah. So Jack must go in the refueling plane and be lowered down, pure Dalton style. More infighting on board the plane, with Annie trying to keep everyone sane while handling the plane's controls. We learn who among the passengers by this point are cowards and who are potentially good. The rapper, after his initial bluster, seems a bit solid, but you know, solid, but still all up for number one. The single dad, after some selfish behavior, which can be justified because he was a priority to his daughter, mans up and is also solid. The Ann Archer senator is, seems to be good. JT Walsh, the CEO, fat cat plane owner, is uh, a massive coward and the real Richard Chamberlain from Towering Inferno wannabe. Uh, one of uh, the rapper's entourage goes into the toilet and tries using his hidden cell phone, but the nutter sees all and presses more buttons, announcing to the passengers that, that they're in for another unscheduled disembarkation. And buttons are pressed, and entourage member is jettisoned from the toilet as the whole roof opens up above him when he's sitting on the loo, and he's whooshed straight up and out of the plane. And he's hitting, he hits the wing as he goes, leaving a smear like a bug on the windshield. This I is a 50. Watch that moment. Yeah, I wouldn't watch that moment in an American cinema, Sheffy. I think there'll, yeah. there'll be a whoop, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Oh, Mindy, the blonde bimbo, sees this through her window and loses her shit. She was already pretty strung out, but this kind of, you know, understandably pushes her over the edge. And she has to be sedated, uh, so she's guzzling champagne, and she has, like, you know, Valium in her bag, and she's, like, takes loads of that, and she conks out under blankets after, a, again, a bit of an airplane, pull yourself together, <laughs> scene. Uh, the daughter is nasty to her dad, but he tries, uh, you know, he raise, rises to the occasion and you know, at some point she sees him in a new light. Meanwhile, the refueling plane is now approaching with Jack on board and the boarding ramp is lowered and Jack is given his final instruction via radio from BN. He's breathing through like this kind of Bane sort of oxygen mask and is obviously nervous. But Jack does what Jack does and he jumps out attached to the plane, uh, the petrol plane by like this wire, very high up, icy winds. Uh, Annie is holding the plane steady as the refueling takes place. Um, and, you know, she's using like the captain's PA, speaking to everyone on the plane, like, attention flyers, please be advised that there may be some slight turbulence. So please do as I do and feel free, feel free to hurl at your earliest convenience. Uh, and as the refueling tube is lowered and attached to the massive plane port, Jack uses the slipstream to be lowered down onto the roof of pe uh, from the petrol plane onto the mammoth plane below. Very strong winds, and Jack is buffeted around all over the place while having to remain in the blind side of the plane so no potential camera nutter can see him. And you know, swaying wire, a flock of birds not wanting to be cut in half by the tail rudder. It's all going on. Plus a double deadline. Jack has to get on to the roof hatch and get that open and get inside before the petrol is finished fueling. Uh, and also the hour is almost up and the plane must climb, uh, which will also automatically seal the hatch and blow Jack right off. So Jack is bounced about on the roof of the plane and he keeps losing his grip, etc. At one point he is buffeted hard and his mask comes off hanging from his neck meaning he's without air at this speed. And he is ripped free from the plane and swings, colliding with the front. 
and he bounces off the nose right in front of Annie. And for a half a second, Jack is like on the nose of the plane being pushed up towards the windscreen and before the wind pulls him off and away. And inside the cockpit, Annie is like, Jack? And after a few near misses, still with no air and some rolling about on the roof, Jack makes it to the hatch again and the plane is almost refueled and the refueling plane will detach any second. On board, the passengers sway looking up, but not really sure what's happening. Jack is at the hatch. The refueling is 99% complete. Jack must unhook from his wire um, so that when it reaches 100%, um, he'll jump straight in. Uh, so he's hanging for a second off the side, buffeted like crazy. The hatch is open and he manages to heave himself with all his strength inside. The petrol, petrol pump then goes bing at 100% and detaches and swings free, uh, whisked up and away with the big metal like petrol pump bit almost taking Jack's head off as it whips past. Jack gets inside as the plane now uh, rises another 50 feet as flown by Annie, as the hour is almost up, and the hatch shuts and reseals, and Jack is now on board the plane. And he announces himself to the passengers, uh, and they're all happy to see him, but also slightly hostile and suspicious. And Jack says everyone uh, from now on, uh, they have to ha like have a partner and never let them out their sight because you know someone on board is a wrong one. And the teenage daughter is like, so it's true, one of us is doing all of this? And you know, the Alan Ruck father type is like, but that's crazy. If we blow, he'll go with us. And Annie is like, yeah, I know, like cooling from the back. You nailed it. Yes, he is crazy. Did you just work that out for yourself? So now the flight has several exciting set pieces as they continue to climb for their hourly deadline. Um, with Annie flying, there are some close calls and so forth. Uh, Jack is aided by the tech guy um, to track the uh, altimeters, uh, which are scattered throughout various places within the plane, each fitted with a booby trap explosive. So Jack must travel to different parts of the plane, avoiding various booby traps and disarm all the devices in uh, as um, luxury passenger areas and also below decks and in the hold and shit. Nutter at one point uh, manages to, you know, watching on cameras, tracks, uh, traps Jack in some area, uh, like with the entourage person, and he's gonna almost, you know, Jack almost gets blown out a few times. And Annie at one point has to bank the plane really hard to throw Jack out of this one room just before the, the door seals. And Jack like flies across and like smacks into the other wall, but at least he's out of the, the room before it blows up. Um, also, while she flies, uh, yeah, Jack has to crawl and explore the plane. Um, at one point, the congresswoman, Anne Archer, um, she starts, you know, helping out and sort of proving that she's a good person, uh, but then she, she gets killed. Uh, her, her partner, um, tech guy, you know, the one who yeah, everyone had to be in a partner, um, he gets blamed for her death, but pleads innocence. At one point, when Jack is uh, in a most uh, conspicuous position, um, the plane nutter blows his section, maybe killing the handsome flight attendant. Um, but Jack Thorpe gets out of that one by the skill of his teeth. Um, all the passengers are together and um, you know, he demands, who wasn't alone five minutes ago? Who was alone? And the businessman CEO, you know, JT Walsh, snuck off to use the bathroom probably to do coke and is now suspect number one. Another tense moment comes 
as the plane goes through some foreign airspace like China or North Korea, and they send up some MiGs who are like, you're in our airspace and we're going to open fire if you have to lower, you have to go down or we're going to fire missiles. And Ellie's like, you got to go wrong, I can't go down. And she tries to explain that they're having none of it. And they say, drop speed and height. Um, and they, but um, so Annie like still climbs and changes course. And the MiGs are going to fire. And Annie like pulls hard again, almost ramming one of the MiGs that darts out of the way. That's in the trailer. Um, and they're all set to fire on this big plane when Annie pulls up and disappears into this huge cloud, um, apparently leaving the airspace because the MiGs pull out immediately. There's a moment of peace, and Annie uh, is congratulated uh, with her quick thinking, um, taking them into this cloud, and then a proximity alarm starts blaring in the cockpit, and Annie's like, that's crazy, we're thousands of feet up, proximity to what? And they emerge from the deep cloud and come face to face with the side of a massive mountain, and Annie must swerve and take the plane between two peaks and the undercarriage scraping <laughs> snow and ice from the mountain top. Uh, on the ground, they were working hard to find out who the Nazis can be. Oh, and they discover Cobb, uh, the, um, his, um, the, the grizzled chief, his right hand is this like cool businesswoman, really cool and quippy, uh, but find out she's been a bit ruthless and ambitious more than she let on, and some suspicion is cast her way. But she does get, um, she does something cool to save Jack, and suspicion sort of moved away from her a bit because she realizes one of the devices is a decoy and will kill whoever touches it. Um, so through all of this and some detective work, we also learn that um, there's a private investor who has apparently taken out a huge insurance policy against the plane's parent company, meaning that if the plane goes down on this maiden voyage, this person will make a killing. And BN is like ordering them all to find out who this person is. And in a pure 90s way, there's like a, on the computer screen, it shows and reveals a photo as it downloads from the top to the bottom, but a little bit slowly. Like, beep, 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 and you see like the hair and then the forehead and, beep, 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 oh, and the that. eyes, it goes down. Yeah, and the screen reveals the photo um, top to bottom. And um, it's the congresswoman person who's in the base camp with them all. Um, and everyone's like, oh, shit, uh, it's you. And she's like, no, I only wanted money. It wasn't me who did the bombs. And they they take her away. And on board the plane with a few more devices left, Annie and Jack now have to swap places because uh, Jack has been monitored and almost killed a few times. So um, they're watching everywhere. They have cameras. They can't be avoided. So because of that, Annie is, uh, they're both in the cockpit alone. Annie is the only one small enough to use this tiny floor hatch uh, to get out with none of the other passengers seeing. So now Jack flies and Annie does like some McLean stuff, crawling through bulkheads and shitty tunnels in the guts of the plane, finding the last of the devices and having a few adventures of herself, disabling with radio support from uh, you know Jack on the ground. And she's almost killed by more booby traps. Um, opening sections of the plane and expelling, you know, who is ever inside that section and stuff. And Annie must be helped. At one point, she's uh, like in trouble, but a hand comes out and grabs her. And it's like really, really groggy and half panicked, but massively valiant up Mindy the bimbo with massive hair, which is now totally crazy. Um, and she's like, get out, get out. And she pulls Annie and they sort of like stumble. And Mindy the bimbo is like really still drugged and like stumbling. And, they're like helping each other, like, get out, get out. And they get out of the section just in time before that, you know, depressurizes and everything. Um, 
So now a few more passengers die, including one half of that arguing couple. And the wife is like, oh, no, we didn't hate each other that much, really. Oh, that sort of thing. Uh, some people redeem themselves. Some show their nasty true co uh, colors. And apparently this nicer Iranian rich guy who started being nice and then got a bit panicky, then was nice again and sort of manned up. And now he goes full twat and leaves uh, the moody teenage daughter to die, uh, who is saved at the last second by Colin, the co-pilot. And Colin is evacuating everyone from the front portion of the plane now in case of further decompression. And he's sealing off all the bulkheads and air airlock sort of doors everywhere uh, to make the, the group go to the tail of the plane. And the plane is rocked uh, now as they're all heading um, you know, um, in this bumpy, bumpy plane. And Mindy falls and Colin goes back for her and a button is pressed and the door closes and seals behind them, blocking them off from the rest. Uh, and so now J.T. Walsh, the CEO, runs and he shows his first sign of any affection towards Mindy as he rushes to the circular porthole in the door. And she looks at him and smiles bravely. And with her, Colin says, get back the way we came. There may be and then the lights go suddenly strobe and sparks flare and there's like a little mini explosion and a bunch of mini explosions inside that cabin. And at the window, JT Walsh is like, Mindy! And everyone else is like, Colin! And inside the sealed compartment, uh, the whole, you know, Mindy and Colin look at each other and then uh, we see them pounding at the door, you know, Jack and, and everyone. And then the section uh, decompressurizes and um, the whole thing goes, goes crazy and the roof flaps open. And the lights come back on just as it reseals, and you know, every, of course, it's empty. And the door then opens again, and Jack runs in, but you know, of course, it's totally empty and deathly quiet. And JT Walsh is like, She should never have even been here, it's all my fault. And the tech guy is like, Save your tears for the ground, man, we're not out of this yet. <laughs> and they keep rising and rising, <laughs> and the circuit of the earth by this point is nearly complete. And the plane is now way high. This is affecting the controls as well as making the wings start to glow red. And uh, they're now uh, scraping the Earth's atmosphere. But Jack uh, is in touch with the ground crew and BN, and they've been hatching a plan throughout, which now we learn. So no one on the plane can know of any rescue attempt uh, with no plane. You know, nothing can be sent up to them, but something can be sent down. So a space shuttle has been launched with BN and his crack team on board up into space, and then it's going to down to intercept the plane uh, as it's like you know kissing the atmosphere. So Annie then is flying the plane, holding it steady, unknown until the last second by the passengers that they're now going to be uh, the space shuttle comes down on top and attaches to the plane with like a kind of a long, thick, transparent tube. Uh, this umbilical thing going on. So skimming the surface of the Earth's atmosphere now, with the wings glowing and yet ice forming, the wings and controls are starting to lock and the remaining bombs are ticking. Jack now gets the surviving passengers uh, to the rattling and cracking tube and he sends them up one by one where they, they pass between vehicles and then into the space shuttle uh, above uh, where they are greeted by BN who pulls them up with his men. Um, and so one by one, the, the, the passengers get out. The plane is starting to, um, is still going up and up. It now loses gravity uh, and some light floating occurs. The last of the passengers uh, are sent up through the tube to the shuttle above. 
And as the last ascent up and out, uh, we totally think that the Ruck single dad is going to die because he goes back for his daughter. And then as he pushes her up, he falls back and is hurt and stranded in the tube, which is now coming apart. But then he is saved by the rapper who's finally revealed to be a hero after all. And perfect. he grabs Ruck and he pulls him up just in time. Um, and the plane is now breaking apart and the connecting umbilical is losing stability. And Bien uses his last second to get through and he gets through the tube and enters the plane and his men are following him. Jack is now on the controls, locking them, um, but they're you know, trying to fly as straight as possible. Bien um, is like, you know, get at the tube's entrance now here on the plane and he meets Annie, who, you know, Jack has sent back. Um, and she's, you know, he's like, go, get out, go, go get to the shuttle before we lose the tube. And she's like, I'm not leaving without Jack. And Bien says, she's, you know, you're a very brave young lady. But, you know, he, he's got his guys coming through the tube. Jack is on the radio. He's right behind Annie. So BN is like, the best way is to help yourself, to help the plane, and to help Jack is to get up and out right now. And, uh, you know, BN is like, he's on the radio. Jack is right behind me. Trust me, go. So Annie uh, goes into the tube. Uh, just as men, uh, BN's men are coming into the tube from the other side, and they're sort of passing each other in this tight space. And Annie looks back up at Bien, and Bien is like, go! And Annie shouts up back at him, where's Jack? And Bien says, don't worry, I'll send your regards. And he smiles, and Annie freezes, oh, no. and it all becomes clear. And it's a double twist, and it is pure Die Hard 2, after all. And Bien closes and seals both <laughs> the entrances to the tube, uh, sealing Annie and the men inside between both vessels, and the tube starts to come apart. Bien is, of course, the ground nutter who is operating everything down there. We learn it was always his plan to get on board to quote-unquote rescue the hostages at some point, but he would have quote-unquote failed, dying a hero with all the passengers lost, etc. Uh, you know, going to a beach earning 20% and all of that. Jack's interfering genius, has caused yeah, problems. An evil genius. <laughs> this is going to be used against you this podcast one day. <laughs> ultimately, uh, Jack uh, caused problems, but it's ultimately business as usual. And now being grins um, and he presses a button on his controller and detaches the tube from the space shuttle, which is in a pure, um, you know, speed way. The music's like da 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 as the passengers now aboard the space shuttle watch through the window as it moves away from the plane, which is just like you know on fire basically on the touching touching the edge of space. So now that's detached and it moves away and the tube is, is sealed from both ends, but it's still attached to the plane. But kind of like in uh, E.T. on the back of the ambulance, it's like banging against the side of this plane and everything is super hot, of course. And it's you know only attached to the plane by some very thin looking space fabric. So it's not going to hold. Um, so um, so now. Um, Inside the tube, Annie and the three of Bien's men, who of course have been betrayed, were banging about. And Bien is spilling all of this to Jack on the radio as he makes his way to the cockpit. And he arrives, still talking with Jack, with his gun out, ready to shoot Jack. But the cockpit is empty, and Jack has the drop on Bien, and it's still in zero gravity. They fight. And inside the tube, Annie and the men are buffeted massively as the plane slowly lowers again, re-entering the atmosphere. Annie is slowly pulling herself up and the men are like 
pushing her up, you know, in front against the tremendous G-force and so forth, up to the entrance of the tube, and she manages to get it open, and, and again, with the assistance being pushed up, um, she, she sort of manages to grab the inside of the plane and starts really slowly pulling herself out of the tube back onto the plane, and she pulls herself in and collapses on the floor, totally exhausted, panting, uh, and then a pair of shoes enter the frame as someone now stands over her and Annie looks up at the person and Annie says, no way. And we cut back and Jack and Bien are fighting, zero G floating, punching and shoving. They're in the games room and Jack throws a floating pool ball at Bien, cracking him in the head and they float into the swimming pool room as the water is floating around them as they punch through the floating puddles and both performing cool moves. And Bien, uh, though, gains the upper hand and twats Jack quite a bit and looks about ready to finish him off. Then the plane drops back into the atmosphere and in the tail section of the plane, the gravity comes back and Jack grabs a strap from the ceiling, but Bien is not so fast and his eyes go wide and he goes, Wah! and like a cartoon character suddenly, he falls down the length of the plane landing hard, tangled in with all the bags and shit far below, all mangled. And Jack then races back to the tube and he finds Annie on her knees, panting by the now resealed tube port. And Jack sort of halts, sensing something's wrong. And he's like, Annie? And then a figure steps forward with a gun trained on Annie. And Jack stares and it's only bloody Mindy, the blonde bimbo. And uh -huh. she and the partners from the off and when she and when he couldn't be the nutter on the voice on the radio, she did it from the plane. And when she was supposedly on Valium, it was from her own stash and it was only bloody Tic Tacs. And she's doing all sorts of shit when she's apparently conked out under all those coats and things. And, um, you know, apparently Colin's death was taking one for the team. And when he got blown out of the section, she hid in like an overhead compartment for the bags and stuff. Um, and now she's going to escape the plane with all the spoils of the sabotage being hers. Um, and you know, it's a massive long con getting in with J.T. Walsh and all of it. Uh, Jack tries to reason with her. In case you didn't notice, we're going down. And Mindy is like, yep, and no one will ever know. Poor Mindy wasn't burnt up in the explosion or sucked out into space or frozen or was cooked. Poor Mindy, the simple victim. How do you like me now, Jack? And Mindy holds up the familiar control device and she presses a few more buttons, beep, boom, beep. And Mindy says, and no one left but brave Annie, reliable Jack, and oh, I'd almost forgotten. And inside the tube, now barely attached to the side of the plane, the three uh, BN SEAL members are trying desperately to unseal the entrance again to get back onto the plane. But now uh, the SEAL starts beeping and the men panic. And on board, Mindy says, Bye-bye, brave heroes. We, the survivors, salute you. And Annie's like, no! And Mindy presses the last button and the tube detaches from the side of the plane and immediately spins away, super fast glowing, super hot, and then breaks into a thousand fiery pieces, the bodies whipped out and flung away high above the earth. And now on board, Mindy points a gun at Jack and pushes Annie forward. And Mindy is like, I was hoping you'd each get a better death than a bullet but I'm on the clock, sorry. And she's about to fire Annie's, um, and whilst Annie's fingers behind her, edging to the door release button behind her. And now Mindy points the gun right at them and Annie presses the door release button 
and the door opens, which was sealed behind her, uh, making this section uh, depressurize. And Mindy fires as the wind hits her, um, but the bullet goes wide and the plane rocks and bucks, and Jack and Annie flee through the plane. Uh, they reach back to the tail of the plane. Jack is saying that, that, you know, um, that BN and Mindy must have stashed some sort of high altitude parachutes for their escape. Uh, but then uh, Mindy is like chasing them and emerges and is firing her gun. As Jack desperately seeks a way out, Annie now leaps from a suitcase storage section down at Mindy and they grapple as the gun is dropped and the pair exchange some serious blows. But Mindy gets the upper hand and knocks Annie savagely to the ground. And she's about to finish her off when Jack emerges from the hold carrying a last parachute. Says, Look what I found. It's yours, right? And Mindy is like, so what, Jack? You want to leave us both here? There's no, in exchange, you take this, just leave Annie. And Mindy cackling, romantic and pathetic. Okay, Jack, you win. You get the girl, and I hope you're very happy together. Although I will be honest, I'm not seeing much in the way of a future. And, she, and so Jack passes Mindy the parachute, and she passes Jack Annie. And uh, Mindy cackles and backs into an airlock of sorts, donning the, you know, the high altitude drop. Uh, rig and all the time she's cackling and Mindy is like Annie it was wonderful meeting you Jack a blast and she hits a button blowing the door behind her and is immediately sucked out of the plane and away and she shoots down super speed uh, leaving the plane far behind and after a steep and rocketing fall she checks her equipment and her chute and uh, the little dial on her wrist and she pulls the chute which opens smoothly and she's uh, Paul gets pulled up drastically, of course, but then starts drifting down. And she's like, ah, and she sees the sun rise over the horizon of the earth and just, just enjoys watching the plane spiral away. Uh, on board, Jack and Annie race to the storage section and Jack's like, there's got to be one more shoot, you know, for BN. Uh, but they don't find it and it's all grim. And Annie sees that Jack was grasping at straws, but now they're out of options. And he looks at Annie helplessly and we see it in his eyes. They're not going to make it. And behind them, in a pile of suitcases, a figure stirs and a battered and angry BN emerges, unseen, all bloody and shit. And he starts to crawl towards the heroes. And the plane is sinking lower and lower and the wings are glowing red hot and the whole plane starting to buckle even more with bits flying off and rattling and shit. And Jack and Annie have a quiet moment, apparently alone together, to accept their fate. And they talk it out about how he was scared to have a real boring, quote unquote, relationship. And then he says that uh, she was afraid of, of him finding her boring. And she just wanted to take their relationship to the next level and, you know, not lose the honeymoon buzz. But she got addicted to that buzz. And they realized they both wanted the same thing, to be together. But they were both worried for different reasons. And that drove them apart. And BN is crawling closer still. And Annie sits down and winces, reacting to the hard object. And she looks, and it's part of the tech giant's project he was bragging about earlier, which includes uh, weather anomalies. And there's this huge high-grade weather balloon. And Jack says, one chance, another very good one. And Annie, I've seen worse odds. And Jack blows for tail section. The tail flies off. The wind is whipping it around them as Jack buckles him and then her into the balloon he's like put your strap this on and hold me tight and she says 
I think is finally starting to speak my language, Jack. And so uh, Annie and Jack hug each other. Uh, and Annie says, I suppose you realize this is going to make us famous again. And Jack, at least we'll be dead. And Annie, that's great, Jack. <laughs> and they have, to, uh, they have to time it right, making sure they get into the slipstream of the plane. Otherwise, they'll just get burnt up. Um, and Bien then raises up, bleeding, holding a gun. And he stands before them and he shouts, Jack, you don't really think you're surviving this, do you? And Annie shouts, we've survived worse. We're from L.A. And they jump and BM fires but misses and BM can't believe it. And he races back up the plane, back the way he came. Um, and Annie and Jack tumble through the air and the wind is crazy and they watch the plane spin away. And as they spin and fall and half get into a comfortable, well, into a half controlled fall and Jack screams, now or never. And uh, Annie shouts, I'll take now. And she pulls the cord and the chute and these three sort of weather mini helium filled balloons pop out and inflate um, and as well as these little mini you know parachutes and Jack and, and Annie spin and fall in a tangled mess spiraling crazily but the second parachute and a third mini parachute opens and they sort of start to right themselves and um, they their plummet is is halted and they uh, they come down and as they burst out of the cloud, they see Los Angeles airport spread out below them and the plane spirals down and down. And inside, BN now uh, has managed to make it to the cockpit of the three falling plane. And he opens a hidden compartment inside the cockpit and pulls out his parachute and he grins evilly. Then the plane suddenly bursts out and emerges from the last of the clouds and BN's grin freezes as he sees Los Angeles airport rushing up to meet him. Um, and the plane goes down fast and BN sees it at impossible speed. It rushes up to him. Um, the city, the airport, we, then we cut to the airport with an LAX, planes are taxiing, passengers are waiting, uh, luggage trucks are driving across the tarmac, 50, uh, 50 large city buses are parked neatly lining up on the causeway, and a moment of quiet whilst a hip baggage handler is listening to loud music on his headphones as he has a little boogie as he's stacking his bags. Mm -hmm. And we hear a tiny excerpt of what he's listening to. And it's the song by the rapper Outreach. And now the baggage handler frowns at something as suddenly something is blocking out the sun and, and a shadow falls over him and his bags. And he pauses and then looks up just in time to see a massive plane falling out of the sky right down, um, right at him. And he stares, but then he bolts and runs and he survives. Uh, in, inside the cockpit, BN sees the airport flashing up at him and he screams in fury and terror. Ah! And the plane comes down into the airport, landing right on top of the buses and explodes in a massive fireball. And everything goes up as the luggage guy legs it, escaping totally. Um, and a moment, and then the baggage handler emerges from behind like a smoking suitcase shelter, and he's all frazzled and shit as he takes in the carnage. And he looks at his hand and sees he's still holding the handle of one of the suitcases, and he drops it, um, and then sort of like staggers around. And above, now drifting down, is Jack and Annie, and they see the explosion far below them. Um, and Jack says, boy, they must really hate us here. And Annie, they're not the only one, Jack. What about Mindy, the bimbo? 
think uh, there's a world where she lets the, la uh, the last two witnesses escape. And Jack is like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about Mindy. And Annie's like, oh, no. And Jack says, she seemed to have a problem keeping her head out of the clouds. And Annie's like, oh, God, Jack, no, no, oh, no, no, no. And then we cut uh, to Mindy, and she's still drifting down, all victorious. Uh, and we see, like, we move in on her shoot, uh, and uh, we see there's a small device uh, planted there by Jack, of course, which then lights up, and we move in on the dial as um, the automata on it is uh, dropping from green down into red, and uh, uh, it lights up and starts beeping. And then Mandy hears this, frowns, and then realization dawns, and then the beep escalates as she drifts down, and the altimeter reads it, and she passes the designated height, and um, she descends, uh, she drops below, and Mandy says, shit, and then we cut to kind of like, um, well, we see a close-up of the dial moving into the red, and then Mindy in like a semi-long shot drifting down, still high above the city, and then she explodes. And... Um, <laughs> she's going to be trapped. Like all of them were going to arrest her when she landed. That's yeah, <laughs> no, she's she, she's all over, uh, all over the place. And so now Jack and Annie are drifting down, and the ground team, of course, are all reacting. And Jack's radio starts going nuts, and he unclips it from his belt and goes to speak. But Annie takes the radio from him and just drops it. And uh, Annie's like, "Please, Jack, just a little privacy." And she then starts undoing his jeans and she's like hugging him koala style. And Jack is like, uh, Annie, honey, I'm not sure this is the first time. And Annie's like, you always say that. And she gets his jeans undone, you know, and they flop down to his ankles as they're, you know, they're going down. You know, and he's just exposing his boxer shorts and legs. And Jack is like, yeah, but this time, I really think this is not the best time or place. And she's like, come on, it's private, isn't it? And suddenly three uh, police helicopters and five media helicopters just burst around them and flock and circle as they drift down. And Annie's like, oh, shit, Jack, cover your face. And he's like, with what? Like, Jack, this is going to make you famous. And then shouting at the top of her voice to the circling media helicopters, hey, take a live satellite video, why don't you? It'll last longer. Jack smiles and shakes his head and then he starts unbuttoning Annie's jeans too and Annie's like Jack this is definitely gonna make you famous again and Jack says worth it totally and above the city surrounded by copters Jack and Annie drift down on their parachute and get at it and that's <laughs> the end we have credits and we have two taglines uh the first one keep rising, keep fighting, and don't look down. And the other one, which isn't as good, what goes up, dot, 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 which is rubbish because the whole thing is altitude. It's like, we don't want to think about it going down. So anyway, there you go. Uh, there's my, uh, uh, my, my speech too. Jesus Christ, Benjamin Shepherd, listen to me. I am going to quote to you a, a message sent to me let me get the bloody time of this on the 29th of april australian time circa 1852 6:52. <laughs> very nice about all for potty i've got bare bones for speed <laughs> i had so less time to allow it to balloon it's probably a good idea 
Not only did it balloon, you gave the characters balloons, and you get these incredible <laughs> like parachute ideas and everything, man. Sheppy. Nothing but time. balloons. I guess. Listen, let me give you some bullets. I dropped it down as you were talking. Look, first and foremost, brilliant twisties. Like, I didn't get oh, it. Nice. I never guessed it. I totally assumed J.C. Walsh was going to be a wrong and, and you, you, yes, absolutely brilliant. Um, the, um, I thought you got Bullock spot, spot on. Annie's energy, man. Perfect. The whole way through. Perfect. And like, and I just see them. She's become a meme now in your world. Like, if you just think about driving something, it's either Annie at a bus or Annie at a plane control. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'd never seen the landing gear thing, and that was very visceral and nice with them all falling and clanking, and that was nice. And um, yeah, I did like your beat bot boots occasionally. So, <laughs> um, whole movie is a trailer moment, I've just put, which is absolutely in keeping with the first movie. Everything's a trailer moment, everything's a trailer line. It's amazing. I love the Reeves stuff. I love the fact he's a wild card again. I love Jack chasing the plane. I've got, um, yeah, I just love it. And, uh, oh, God, I couldn't read my writing there. I wrote that down very quickly. Never mind. It was wonderful, whatever it was about Jack as well. <laughs> and then, um, and just even Annie's like, I'll take now, like with the, you know, with the parachute world at the end. I just, um, you've got so many movie moments, Sheffy. There's just really good crowd, please. It's fucking hell. Even just the bag of, like, just you've got time to do the baggage handler listening to the rapper that's in your movie. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know that song's gonna be the second song at the end credits as well. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I'm number one on top of the pot. Yeah, listen, <laughs> that was wicked. Lots of fun. Really cool. Out Thanks, of this man. world, shall we say. Oh yeah, yeah. Post a quote. Yeah. Well, it it did come together the bare bones idea like yeah like like you said as well like i was banging my head like what can it be and then once the the idea of going up so that's why i had that was what i meant by the bare bones i had the the the, the in incidentally in another world the first act was going to be on a roller coaster out of control and uh, the third act was going to be a cable car which detaches and swings like a pendulum. Wicked. But I didn't have any more details than that. Um, but obviously, that's, that's not going to happen. Like the theme park too, actually. I wondered about that. Like, you know, maybe the kid had a whole memory where his dad didn't take him to a theme park and wanted to like do right. something there, you know. But, but yeah. Nice, Shep. That was bloody wonderful. Thank you on behalf of the list. Wonderful. Well, for thank you for setting it. And bloody amazing pitch there. It's amazing. Um, so listen, Altitude Boy, where's your head in the clouds for the next one? Talk to me. Brilliant. I like it. Well, look, this is another one which has been kind of like floating around, and it's it's such a you type suggestion. I haven't done anything like this before. This sort of thing is usually you. And when you set it, I'm always like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. Um, So that's why I haven't. But I I feel like I should. So today's the day. So I'm going to finally do the one, which I myself will be like, Jesus Christ. Um, It's a TV show, Jimmy. It's a TV show. And I don't think I've set, I did The Hulk, and my Flight of the Navigator became a TV show. But I think generally Friends, the um, I guess, yeah, Commando. Yeah. But you did Friends, you did Kerb, of course, you did 40 Towers. Um, so I'm doing a TV show um, on a new season. And this, of course, this new season could be made anytime. Um, of Jimmy, Blackadder. 
it reeks of Jimmy. It reeks of Jimmy. <laughs> now, I will say this as chronology goes, obviously, as each season progresses, it moves forward in time, uh, which is fine. But if I don't want you to feel handcuffed, so if you want to set the fifth Blackadder series basically in a previous time era and break that cycle, feel free if you so okay. wish. Man, that's oh, that's something. And I'll say this: um, I, I guess basically a general concept of the you know the era, the season, who the players are in this reality, and maybe like a vague idea of like one episode plot, but it doesn't have to be really heavily plotted out. It's more about like the main gist of the six episodes season. Nice, Jesus. <laughs> It's another <laughs> yeah. very, very soldier, isn't it? Yeah, God. Uh... Yeah, yeah. But what can you do? The time is right. Because other choices I have, again, are perhaps too reminiscent of recent things. But this is like a sort of, yeah, just to shake things up a little bit. Oh, God. There you go, Jimmy. There you go. Good All stuff. Right, man. God, I got no, I genuinely have no inspo at the moment, but we will see. We'll see. Yeah, well, let it, let it munge. Let it munge yeah, me old yeah. saver. I don't either. So don't worry about it. It's good stuff. Uh, Jimmy, <laughs> an absolute joy. I guess that the only thing remaining is how do we sign out of this? It's a question. It's a quiz. You could say it's a pop quiz. What's your favourite Charlie Sheen film? Is it Hot Shots? You tell me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> still not really a sign-off, so if there's anything you want to add, I don't know if that counts. <laughs> what is your favourite Charlie Sheen movie? My favourite Charlie Sheen movie, I feel on some level I should say Platoon, but honestly, it's probably Terminal Velocity. Oh, Terminal wow. Velocity for life! Um, you know, that I mean, Hot Shots is good, Wall Street is good. Wall Street yeah. for me, I think, yeah, it's Wall Street for me. And then Hot Shots, maybe second. And nice. then Platoon, third. I don't know. I need to think a bit more about that. I need to keep it just again. Well, if if it counts, if it counts, then that's my favourite Charlie Sheen film. But um, I don't think it counts as a quote unquote Charlie Sheen film. But there you go. Have we officially signed off, by the way? Or I don't this know. Still... I was going to say. I think this is still it. I'm. This me. feels like we're still in the room <laughs> and we've said goodbyes, is. but we we've called the lift, but it hasn't arrived, and we sort of awkwardly press it again. It's like sort of the, the conversation's dribbling out. Jimmy, how can we finish a podcast about speed? Any idea? I don't know, Sheppy. What do you do? What do you do? That's good stuff. And I especially like the turning into Doc Emmett Brown right at the end. Uh, that was a nice twist. I thought it was a pure Reeves. Oh, that's such a shame. <laughs> it was because of the quaver in the voice. It was, yeah, yeah, it was just the quaver. It it okay. That's why I wouldn't be an action it. hero. I was thinking about that during your pitch. There were a couple of moments where Reeves was telling people to do things like down and that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> you know, it's almost your passenger 57 of like, well, Reeves says that to me, like down. I'd be like, so what, that duck? But before I'd even finish the duck, I'd have my head <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like in any episode of 24 on the phone, like, go to you know, East Bay 17, wait me at ETA, the code is 7491 on the 7th dock, I'll see you there, hang up. Uh, okay, so you got your pen, so it's a 7 East 7, wait, is that, so this is, how do I, which gate? And you're like, hang on, give me the number again, hello? Yeah, really awkward. 
I would be. I would That's why Chloe got the job, Shaps. That's why Chloe got the job. She deserves. I think it, we're fizzling, I mean. aren't we? Jesus, should we just fizzle? I'll fizzle. It's valid. It's good. I like the before, and that's nice. Like a little bomb thing, like. Oh, you could say we've run out of petrol. Ooh, yeah. Ding ding, tickets, Fifty-one, fifty. Yeah. Should have bought a return ticket. Don't know what that means. <laughs>